back to the archives are incomplete. I'm Jonah, and today I am finally, finally, finally talking about Garth Plagueis by James Lucena. This book puts us at number 15, which is over the 10% line. There are 132 more books to go, getting us to a total of 147. I do want to apologize for getting this episode out a little bit late. This is probably going up on Friday because I'm recording late on Thursday, and I already delayed it from last week. This is a bit of a hefty episode, and so I hope that makes up for it. But let's begin with the back of the book. Darth Plagueis. Like all Sith Lords before him, he craves absolute power. But like no Sith Lord ever, he possesses the ultimate power over life and death. Darth Sidious. In secret, he masters the power of the dark side while publicly climbing to the highest government office. One desires to rule supreme, the other dreams of living forever. Together, they will destroy the Jedi and rule the galaxy, unless merciless Sith tradition becomes their undoing. This one is relatively straightforward. It gives you the skills and motivations of our two protagonists, lays out their main conflict. It's the rule of two. How are we going to handle this? Are we going to kill each other? Are we going to work as partners and kill the Jedi? We know the answer to this. We've seen Revenge of the Sith. We know the story. But it's not a bad back of the book, and it's like a pretty solid blurb. So, should you read this? Oh my god, yes. With a little asterisk. Deeply invested and entrenched expanded universe lore geeks are gonna get maximum value. As I mentioned in, I believe, Cloak of Deception, James Luceno was the keeper of the canon, so he has all of these details. There are a lot of quick, deep cuts. And there are some very dense passages. The events of Cloak of Deception take about 12 pages. The events of Shadowhunter take about 7. And most of that is a scene, like a single scene from Shadowhunter from a different perspective. Small Lockdown is hinted at, but doesn't get too much of a nod. Like, the events of Lockdown happen over the course of this book. And it's just like, yep, that happened, moving on. Um, the consequences of the entirety of that novel is acknowledged. In any case, there's a part in my notes where rather than noting the passages I wanted to focus on, it says literally everything for this span of four pages, and I'm going to get into that later. Now, of course, this book expands on Cloak of Deception, Lockdown, Shadowhunter, as well as touching upon and setting up and overlapping with The Phantom Menace. It also goes on to set up the Clone Wars as an event, getting all of the major pieces onto the board and putting them in the right place, packing the keg full of powder and finding a torch to set it off. If you want to go deep, this is the spider sitting at the center of the web. It's a keystone novel. And while you can enjoy everything else without this, the comprehensive story becomes clear because of Darth Plagueis. Of course, beyond general plot setup things, there's a decent exploration of the Sith philosophy. We have mention of all the known Sith from Bane to Sidious. Well, okay. Yeah, of the known Sith. And that's roughly 12 out of 30. And then there's some unknown, unnamed Sith that exist but aren't part of this story or any other canon, at least of as this time. So what are we going to talk about? Obviously, the plot. I'm going to talk about Darth Plagueis, also known as Higo Damask, and his relationship with his master Tenebris, his apprentice Palpatine, life and death. I'm going to talk about Darth Sidious, also known as Sheev Palpatine, and his relationship with his master Plagueis, his apprentice Maul, and politics. We're going to talk about Darth Maul, also known as Maul, and his relationship with his master Sidious, and also murder, but not so much about him. We're going to talk about Count Dooku, who's going to be a backup uh, 
apprentice for either Plagueis or Sidious. It's complicated. And we're going to talk about what he doesn't like about the Jedi Order. We're going to talk about the Jedi Order. We're going to talk about the grand plan. The plot of the Sith to overthrow the Jedi and tear down the Republic is established by Darth Bane a millennia before this. Now, there will obviously be some discussion of philosophy, political systems, and occurrences, training methods, acknowledgments of all the small references, but boy, oh boy, is there so much to talk about. So the plot, the story begins with a prologue, which is a scene from the end of the book, wherein Darth Sidious kills Darth Plagueis, so we kind of know it's coming. Of course, we're not shocked. And you know what? That kind of ruins the book blurb that I was talking about earlier. You know how I was like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It sets up this conflict. And then it asks this question of, unless merciless Sith tradition becomes their undoing, and then immediately answers it before we even know who either of these characters are. Book blurb voted bad. The story is broken into three sections. Enlistment, which is 67 to 65 years before the Battle of Yavin, features Plagueis' rise and his recruitment of Palpatine. Apprentice to Power, which is a decade later, and explores when Palpatine is fully involved and starting to play some galactic chess. And Mastery, two decades after that, and on the cusp of Phantom Menace, where the final pieces are moved into place. Let's begin with Enlistment, years 67 to 65, Battle Before Yavin. Plagueis and Tenebris, his master, who's a bit engineer and scientist, also known as Rugis Gnome and a ship designer, are on a planet called Baldemic, delving into a potential Carcosis vein. Their survey data was not wholly correct, delivered to them by subtext mining, and a gas pocket or something along those lines causes an explosion, and rocks fall. Plagueis takes this opportunity to make rocks fall on Tenebris, killing him. I have here in my notes that I'm going to try and use profane names for mundane actions, so Rugis Gnome, Hego Damask, and Palpatine, but I'm not, I'm not. I'm just going to refer to them as Plagueis and Palpatine and Tenebris. They, I don't need to, like, switch between Palpatine and Sidious and Plagueis and Hego Damask. That's too much confusing. Everybody's going to get one name, whether or not they're acting in their role as a Sith or their day job. The encounter between Tenebris and Plagueis is somewhat interesting because there's tension between them. Tenebris doesn't believe that Plagueis is ready to overthrow him or is planning to at all. And to be fair, Plagueis was not. Plagueis was somewhat content with his relationship. He was looking for a little bit more power before he overthrew Tenebris. But the opportunity presented itself and he took it. Now, Plagueis leaves the planet by way of cargo hauler and kills the crew when they won't do what he wants from them which is to transport him to Munalinst. He murders them with exactitude and does his best to prolong their lives, well, prolong their deaths, so he can study them and examine the flow of midichlorians. He did make a genuine attempt to negotiate with the captain crew. He offered them money and resources, but did not immediately threaten or intimidate them. There isn't a ruthless edge to him. Zana, who was in a similar position in her youth at the start of her apprenticeship as opposed to the end of it, killed the crew of the ship that she was flying when she was but a child. Now, the ship that he takes has a varied crew. It has a Kalish, which is the same species as General Grievous, although General Grievous is more machine than Kalish. A Zabrak, a Togruta, a Balasar, a Qualish, a Klatoonian, and a Dracelian. All of these are near humans as defined by the quote-unquote chauvinist core. The book actually does call this out and does so kind of delicately. It's also a call out to the humanocentric tendencies of other novels. While Plagueis is Omon and Tenebris is a bit, so many other characters are human. I mean, looking at the movies, 
Chewbacca, Yoda, and Jar Jar are the closest to being non-human protagonists in the movie. And two of them, Chewie and Jar Jar, are kind of treated like pets. There aren't a lot of non-human characters in the focus of Star Wars. Now, there are some other books later on that have more non-human characters as the focus, but most books still have human characters as the primary protagonists. There's also some mention of racial stereotypes here and in other places in the books. Bith are mathematically focused, Mun are financially inclined and motivated, Togruta are pacifists with some notable exceptions like Jedi Master Shakti and Jedi Apprentice Ahsoka, Kamasi and Athorians are placid and submissive, and apparently Togruta, going back to them for a second, they have a minor mimetic camouflage. Their skin shifts if they're made uncomfortable. It's not quite camouflage, but it's something similar to it, or just a tonal shift of skin when they feel threatened or uncomfortable that you can detect if you have, say, the eyes of a robot. When Plagueis returns to Munal, it's Munalist. It's spelled M-U-U-N-I-L-I-N-S-T, but the second N is silent. Uh, in any case, when Plagueis returns to Munalist, he is greeted with due pomp and circumstance, as he is also known as Magister Hego Damask head of a very powerful investment group known as the Damas Group. Plagueis has connections with Boss Cabra, who's a Doug, like Sebulba, Anakin's rival in the Pond Race, who is a Vigo lieutenant in the Black Sun, which is an organized crime group. This is more of an inheritance from Tenebris than his personal neck. Then, when he arrives on Munalist, he informs his aides about the death of Tenebris, as Rugus Gnome, and things have been set up so that Hego is Rugus's inheritor. So the transition of power and information and knowledge from Rugus to Plagueis is going to go smoothly and legally. Now, Plagueis has two bases of operations. The first, Abora, is a stronghold on a volcano on Munalist where he keeps his medical experiments. He has many creatures in various states of living, dying, and dissection. The second is Sojourn, a habitable moon that he keeps as a stronghold. I think he owns, like, the whole moon. In any case, outside of the compound, there are woods filled with creatures that are hunted, again for a mix of science and a little bit of sport. But the palace itself is where Hego Damask holds gatherings, meeting of galactic influencers who want his support. Uh, at one such gathering, days after Tenebris' death, Hego, as I mentioned, is Rugus' gnome's legal inheritor, uh, Hego offers support to Gardula the Hut in her claim on Tatooine, offers minor rewards to the Dugs of Malastair who lose out on their pod racing course because Gardula is planning on implementing one on Tatooine. He intimidates the Gossams, who are short, thin, almost like stereotypical little green men aliens, but, you know, blue and sometimes with horizontally elongated heads, like the back of their head just stretches out. In any case, the Gossams were a part of Subtext Mining, who were the surveyors on Valdemic, and in intimidating them, being like, hey, you killed my boss, I'm going to do bad things to you, the lasers are primed and ready to shoot, they give him more information, particularly regarding a plasma well on Naboo. The current monarch of Naboo is against galactic trade and has an isolationist stance. This is going to set up the whole course of actions for everything and forever for the next 30 years until the blockade of Naboo. He also offers to support the Yinchori bid for a Senate seat in exchange for one of their warriors as a biological sample, although not as explicitly stated as that. 
Plagius is interested in the Yinchor because they're resistant to force manipulation or entirely immune and naturally violent, which makes them potential pawns to fight against the Jedi. At this gathering, Hego Damask also strengthens his relationship with Wraith Sinar, who eventually develops the Sith Infiltrator, which is the ship titled the Scimitar, which is seen as Maul's ship in The Phantom Menace. Sinar also develops the twin ion engine line, TIE Fighters, TIE Interceptors, TIE Bombers, etc., etc. After the gathering, Sojourn is attacked by a Force user, Darth Venomous, who was a second apprentice of Tenebris, more in line with his philosophies and those of Darth Bane regarding the succession of power. Plagueis was circumspect and worryingly passive, at least from Tenebris' perspective. Venomous submits to Plagueis after being defeated in combat. Plagueis admits or believes that he's not particularly a good duelist, but believes he's the equivalent of any or most Jedi Masters. Furthermore, Venomous was more of a specialist in direct action than Plagueis' more long-term manipulative style, which makes it even more interesting and impactful that Plagueis was able to defeat him in a duel. Now, only at this point, after he's rejected an offer of submission by Venomous. So, he defeats Venomous and he doesn't kill him. He knocks him out, drags him to his lab, and is like, I'm going to keep you on life support because I'm going to play with your life and death and manipulate the midichlorians that make up your life. I'm going to see if I can bring you back from the dead. But that's a thing that happens later. Right, anyways, yes. So, Plagueis is looking for an apprentice. He starts by checking out all of the other candidates that Tenebris had been seeking. He's able to get the information that belonged to Rugus Gnome because, hey, he's the legal inheritor. He finds, first of all, a Shido shapeshifter who's using his powers to gamble in order to pay off the debts of Carid Santh. Now, Carid Santh is one of the heirs to Santh Sinar. By eliminating the Shido's ability to shapeshift, Plagueis limits his ability to recoup Carid's losses and the scandal forces him to resign, granting more power to Sinar, who we mentioned earlier was at the gathering and is one of Plagueis' allies. Nice and convenient, tidy for him. Then, the second apprentice is an Iktachi prophetess, uh, very similar to Darth Cognus. She preaches her visions, which claim armies of droids fighting armies of droid-like men. She foresees the Clone Wars and the rise of the dark side. Plagueis feels she is damaging to the cause because the Sith aren't quite ready to come out of the shadows, and kills her using the Force and walks away. An Atollan serial killer, similar to Kit Fisto, who's one of the folks who actually goes to try and arrest Palpatine at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Uh, an Atollan serial killer is the third and final candidate. Plagueis convinces him that if he kills the two Jedi tracking the candidate, he'll be accepted as an apprentice. Now, the candidate went kind of serial killer on a bunch of creatures in the vicinity on this planet where he was able to escape to, which is why the Jedi showed up. Now, there's no way of knowing if Plagueis' promise is accurate because the candidate gets cut down pretty easily. This reminds me somewhat of Zana's corruption of Caleb of Ambria and how he was cut down by the Jedi at the end of Rule of Two. The Sith seem to have a way of using the Jedi's rigorous code to eliminate their enemies. Finally, after dealing with these individuals, Plagueis reflects on the role of an apprentice. It doesn't make sense to raise up a challenger if he's going to succeed, to have that person topple him on the verge of success. He needs a partner or minion, not an apprentice hungry for power. Or at least that's what he believes because he has two goals. One is the successful completion of the grand plan that Darth Bane put into action centuries ago, 
which is the eventual toppling of the Republic and the elimination of the Jedi from the galaxy and the rise of the Sith to secular power. The other is a personal goal for immortality. As I mentioned before, he's looking into the manipulation of life and death, seeing if he can use the Force to extend life or to extend death or to reverse death. And he believes that if he succeeds in the one goal of becoming immortal, having an apprentice who's just there to kill him seems like a bad idea. If he is actually immortal or functionally immortal, he'll be able to get around to toppling the Republic and the Jedi in his own time, because he'll be able, with decades, centuries, and millennia of knowledge and power, if it takes that long, to manipulate everything just so. Now we go back and tie in Naboo again. As mentioned, the current ruler of Naboo, the monarch, is isolationist in principle and does not want to expand Naboo into the greater galactic scene. Plagueis, on the other hand, would like access to the resources there. And so Plagueis and the members of the Trade Federation have been supporting a gentleman named Topolo and his advisor Ars Varuna in the campaign because Naboo elects its monarchs. A child, a son of the rival of Topolo and Varuna, leaked some politically embarrassing information about him. Uh, this kid's name was Sheev Palpatine, or just Palpatine as he goes by for now, a mononym like Prince or Zendaya. In any case, uh, Varuna, Ars Varuna, the advisor to Topolo, the candidate for king, quote, burned with greed and ambition, which meant that he could be manipulated if necessary. Now, that's not a particularly interesting line on its own, but combined with the same adjectives applied to Palpatine, which happens shortly thereafter when Plagueis meets Palpatine for the first time, and the above pseudo-philosophy, we see a more interesting picture. Plagueis wants Palpatine to see himself as an equal, but to actually be a puppet for Plagueis' desires. Now, Plagueis reached out to Palpatine because he was curious about this kid, about this child, who, to be fair, is like in his late teens or early 20s. He's at university. And Plagueis wants to see more about him because he betrayed his family. And that picks something in the back of Plagueis' mind. There's also a quick call-out saying, are all the Naboo as hirsute and elaborately costumed? Now, if you don't know the word hirsute, it means hairy or having lots of hair. And if you remember the dress of Padme Amidala in The Phantom Menace, oh boy was her hair done up, and oh boy was she very elaborately costumed. Now, in canon, it's a nod to their royal history and a nod to the founding monarch of Naboo. More interestingly, to me at least, compare the way Padme dresses to Genepil or Genepil, the last queen consort of Mongolia. It's a direct reference and inspiration, as has been noted by the crew of the Phantom Menace. I happened across a picture of Genepil on Reddit and went, hey, wait a second, that looks a lot like Padme. I'll include a comparison image at the description of this podcast, so you can check it out later if you're interested in looking at that. This election cycle happens relatively quickly, however, and Topolo will be elected king for now but we know that Varuna's king in time for Cloak of Deception, and by the time Phantom Menace rolls around, Padme Amidala is queen. Now, this is one of the questions of reading order. If we had read this first, we wouldn't necessarily, theoretically, know that Padme was going to be queen or that Varuna was going to be queen. But I think that there are just so many references that occur in this book that harken back to those events. It's important to read this later so we can recognize those, because... They happen so fast in here that if you weren't aware of them already, you would miss them entirely. Now, this scene, or this time rather, 
is when Plagueis begins to woo Palpatine with offers of eventual power. They have conversations on the university campus, and they come to an agreement where Palpatine will spy for Damask Holdings and Hego Damask. And Palpatine leaks mostly useless information to his mentor. Plagueis is like, yeah, I have other spies, I have this information otherwise, but you as the human, I want to make you feel valuable and cared for and a part of my team so that I can better manipulate you. Now, while only shortly before at one of his initial meetings with the humans of Naboo, Plagueis was espousing the values of human intelligence and cunning, seeing them as peers to Mons, whereas most other species don't live up to his metric and guidelines, he thinks of Palpatine as, quote-unquote, so much going on in that small brain, and so much emotional current and self-interest. Although the latter is something he respects, the self-interest, and the emotional current is something he can take advantage of. It's also revealed that in this early scene, or, or interaction between the two of them, that Palpatine races speeders and always wins. Why would you race if you're not going to win? This is an attitude shared by many other cocky characters, including Anakin Skywalker, who is as yet unborn. During this conversation, Palpatine also shows a disregard for Gungans. Is this two-species planet the cause for his future humanocentric view, or does Plagueis imbue him with his own supremacist ideology? Because, of course, again, I was just mentioning, Plagueis sees Muns and humans above the rest, generally speaking. Now, from their earliest interactions, Plagueis sees a use for Palpatine. Quote, the deceptive cadence, the use of flattery, charm, and self-abasement as a rapier fencer in a duel. The need to be seen as guileless, unassuming, and empathetic. And then a moment later, the Republic, with the aid of the Sith, would continue to descend into corruption and disorder, and that a time would come when they would have to rely on the strength of an enlightened leader capable of saving the lesser masses from being ruled by their unruly passions, jealousies, and desires. In the face of a common enemy, real or manufactured, they would set aside all their differences and embrace the leadership of anyone who promised a brighter future. And this is exactly what happens. There is a manufactured enemy. They have a single leader who is very charismatic, and the people come up to support him. The Senate supports that individual who happens to be Palpatine, and he is Supreme Chancellor for life and Emperor and Democracy Falls. Plagueis would use Palpatine as a figurehead for his empire. He wants them to be partners, Palpatine the public face working with the politics and the people while Plagueis comes up with the plots and figures out how to actually execute on them. Eventually, Papa Palpatine, Kasinga Palpatine, uses his pull with the government to abduct Hego Damask and threaten. Hego threatens him straight back. Papa Palpatine is like, don't talk to Masan ever again. Plagueis is like, yeah. That's not going to play out the way you want it to. I am more powerful than you. And while Kusinga is a relatively powerful political entity on Naboo, Plagueis is orders of magnitude more powerful on the galactic scale. Eventually, she gets on an off-world educational experience for young political leaders, and Plagueis is able to visit him and speak with him in person, and begins to push Palpatine to free himself in the Sith way. He actually has some sound advice. He says, Plagueis says, uncertainty is the first step towards self-determination. Courage comes next. And I find this to be rather insightful. Stepping free into a new experience, choosing to do something is a challenge. You can't know what to expect, like when you're applying for a job or asking someone out or starting a project like a podcast. 
But recognizing that uncertainty and having the courage to step forward to brave whatever those first results of that choice are is huge. Now, Plagueis is urging Palpatine to kill his family and become a Sith Lord, and I'm explicitly not recommending that. But I really like this line. I think it's important for when you are doubting yourself. You are stepping into something you don't know, but you are making a choice for yourself. You can't know the future. And so uncertainty comes with free will. If everything was predetermined, if we're following destiny, you don't need to worry about. But if you have your own, if you are forging your own path, if you're forging your own destiny, if you are making it yourself, there's going to be uncertainty with that. And uncertainty is the first thing that happens. It's overcoming that with courage and bravery and stubbornness. That's the next step. So kind of wholesome from the Sith Lord. Stepping away from wholesome for a moment, though, Plagueis tells Palpatine a story of how he claimed his power as bastard or son of a consort rather than a wife in the Mun lifestyle. He was a secondary child and was going to inherit a very small part of his father's holdings, and he killed everyone in his family. His father died, and Plagueis outschemed his family. He used a fraud of a geneticist to convince everybody in the family that the father and mother had some recessive traits that re created this deadly affliction within them. And then utilizing the same geneticist, the treatment plan that would cure them of this affliction is what killed them and decayed them over time. And then, hey, look, there's only one person left. He didn't have to take the treatment because he was born a bastard and he's somehow miraculously the only one left standing. Now, when Kosinga comes to take Palpatine away and send him to boarding school, we get Palpatine saying, you don't know what I'm capable of and you lack the ability to understand me fully. It's just a, it's not a phase, Dad, moment. Uh, but Palpatine also unleashes the Force, which has been kept up, pent up his entire life, and he kills his father and his mother and his brother and the guards and the crew. He uses the Force to violently emancipate himself. The Force shall set me free, straight from the Sith Code. He calls Plagueis in a panic from this ship out in the middle of space, and Plagueis is like, don't worry, I'm going to have my droid return you to where you were. I'll cover up all of the evidence. You'll be fine. I'll get in touch with you soon. He returns a week later, and Palpatine is at wit's end. He's like, you told me soon. A week is not soon. Blah, blah, blah. But Plagueis very calmly offers him a chance at becoming a Sith Lord and bestows the name Sidious upon him. Now, this is the first instance I've seen where Sith chooses their apprentice's name, the second being Darth Vader being chosen by Palpatine. What's weird about this is immediately after convincing Palpatine to shed his shackles and free himself of his family, Plagueis asks for complete submission from Palpatine and chooses a new name for him and says, you're going to follow me where I say you go, at least until learning is complete. They immediately begin training a little bit on Megiddo, which is where Plagueis grew up as opposed to Moonalist, as they begin to explore philosophy and the power of the Force. Plagueis tells Sidious that it'll be roughly a decade until he's ready for anything. But he also says, you must see every living thing as nothing more than a tool to elevate you. And Palpatine takes that to heart. He manipulates his way through Coruscant, through Naboo, 
And he even sees Plagueis as nothing more than a tool to elevate himself, whereas Plagueis never sees himself as that tool because of his ego. Plagueis also makes a point similar to Bane, not the Sith, not the founder of this order, but the Batman villain Bane. The, oh, you think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man, and by then it was nothing to me but blinding. Now compare that to what Plagueis has to say. No Jedi can lay real claim to the dark side of their force. Their attempts to convince themselves that they fell to the dark side are nothing more than pitiful rationalizations. That is why the Sith embrace the dark from the start, focusing on the acquisition of power. He believes that by embracing and accepting the dark from the beginning, you're going to be able to get more power. It's not something that you can put on or take off like a cloak, like some Jedi think may happen. They think that the dark side comes to you and you might just magically become a full, corrupted, dark Sith Lord. Whereas that's not really how it happens. It's a slow, steady slide into darkness. Now, Plagueis is a much more concentrated teacher than Bane. He has essentially lessons, plans, and a syllabus, but he also has a millennia of mentorship experience from among the Sith with which to develop teaching methods. Of course, his were influenced by how Tenebris trained him. Exposure to the cold, pushing his physical limits, and then testing the mental after pushing the candidate or the apprentice to the absolute edge of physical exhaustion. Plagueis also pushes the idea on Palpatine that they are not butchers, not weak to their emotions, not craven nor brash, but careful architects of the future, planners. They're not ones to have emotional outbursts. They're, they recognize their emotions, but they still do not let the emotions control them. This is where we come to part two, Apprentice to Power, years 54 to 52, before Battle of Yavin. And so we jump cut a decade. They just said it'll take a decade to train you, and here we are, Pretty much a decade later, a little bit longer. Now, Plagueis has continued to push Sidious towards in-person lessons and learning with, rather than reading or listening to holocrons and reading scrolls and books. While that worked for Bane, at this point the Sith have a millennia of revised pedagogy, and on top of that, Plagueis has a modification to the Grand Plan. Rather than following through with the Rule of Two and Palpatine killing Plagueis at some point, once the two of them are equal in power. They will work together to rule the galaxy and bring peace and health and freedom. This does undermine the rule of two, but it's a common thing that the Sith do. I mean, Tenebris had two apprentices, Bane had a second apprentice, everybody has two apprentices, just one of them's a backup and you don't really train them until you absolutely need them. It, breaking the rule of two is kind of what it's there for. There's this guiding philosophy that is the ideal, but you recognize that the galaxy isn't perfect, and breaking that philosophy is reasonable. I mean, if you were a slave to the philosophy, you're not really a Sith. You're not free. And so, really, the most Sith thing you can do is break the Sith code. At this point, after this time passage, Palpatine is now an ambassador. Tapalo is king. Varuna, his advisor, is governor of Theed. Vidar Kim, who is Palpatine's mundane mentor is a senator for Naboo. Now, because of his ambassadorship, Palpatine is able to travel and begin developing connections. Furthermore, uh, Senator Vidar has a son who has been taken in by the Jedi, and so Plagueis really encourages the relationship between Palpatine and Vidar Kim. There's a meet-and-greet 
slash soiree sort of thing where a woman flirtingly asks if Palpatine is a Jedi because he's so good at reading her and other people. And he responds with the truth, saying anything but. This is something that he does all the time. He says who he is or what he's doing. And it's obvious if you know he's being duplicitous and a Sith, but it can be very easily written off if you don't suspect him. And it's also very brazen of him to make such claims, just being like, ah, yes, I am the opposite of a Jedi, or I am lying to you right now, Jedi Master. That sort of thing, while it's very clear to us that he's actually being honest and revealing his identity as a Sith in a way, playing with that, playing with that tension, it's something that you would write off if somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, I'm actually a sleeper agent for a foreign government. You're not going to believe them. It, that It's just so out there and wild that one of your friends, you're just like, what? No, you, you play games with me. You talk to me about that's weird. I don't believe that. You're just kidding with me. And you just move on and disregard that piece of data, even if they tell you directly. And Palpatine doesn't ever say, yeah, I'm a Sith Lord, you shouldn't trust me. He just hints at it everywhere. Now, Palpatine is in his mid to late 20s, I believe, and is on Dathomir chasing the secrets of the Force. Dathomir is richer in the Force than Korriban or Zayas, which are both dark side strongholds, but those both have been long abandoned, and, I mean, even during the time of Bane, a lot of Korriban was very weak in the dark side. I mean, there was a presence, but it wasn't palpable because so much had been taken away whereas Dathomir is still a live planet that has many dark side practitioners now Palpatine is recognized by a night sister as being forceful she doesn't actually care if he's Jedi or Sith and she pushes her son Maul onto him and asks that Palpatine take her child away so that he won't be used by the night sisters Palpatine accepts after some negotiation and sends him to Mustafar and then later Orsis for raising and training this is something that he discusses with Plagueis. It's not just something he does and hides from his master, but he does and he's like, hey, I'm doing this. I have this forceful child. We'll figure it out later. Now, cutting back to Sojourn, Plagueis begins to contact various species and organizations to develop weapons and tools for the eventual downfall of the Jedi. And when I say various, I mean all of them. There's the Commerce Guild, the Techno Union, the Trade Federation, who are all... Confederacy of Independent Systems members in the future. They're the Zichar, the Colicoids, and Geonosians, who are all weapon and droid manufacturers. And then, of course, Sinar of Sinar Fleet Systems. Now, Plagueis and Palpatine talk about undermining the Jedi, and they say that the Jedi need to be forced to appear to be enemies of peace and justice. They have to play very carefully because it would be so easy to make them martyrs, and they need to avoid that. And the plan is to do this after Palpatine is elected Supreme Chancellor. This is the first concrete mention of the grand plan of Palpatine and Plagueis. Sidious, or Palpatine, in this discussion also mentions that Plagueis will be referred to as Darth Plagueis the Wise in the annals of Sith history. This is not a point where Plagueis corrects Palpatine. He does not say, oh, there will be no more Sith after us. We will be immortal Sith ruling together. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to take this title, Plagueis the Wise. That's me. I'm pretty awesome. This is also part of Palpatine's long-term plan to supplant Plagueis by inflating his ego and kind of giving, doing an inception sort of thing with ideas, getting Plagueis to believe that he has these ideas regarding the downfall of the Jedi and the Republic, 
even though they all fit into Palpatine's plan. Now, Tenebris and his master, before Plagueis even entered the scene, considered bioengineering, a virus that would attack only forceful individuals, but they chose to not do that because it would also kill the Sith. Now we move on to Vidar Kim. He has been speaking out against the Trade Federation and, of course, against Apollo and Ars Varuna, and previously his family accepting his son Ronhar, who was given to the Jedi Temple at a young age, so his wife and other children were killed in a speeder accident. Now, because he's been talking against the Trade Federation and may damage the plans or delay the plans of Plagueis and Palpatine, Plagueis tasks Palpatine with arranging the assassination of his friend and mentor. Palpatine sees this manipulation, sees how Plagueis encouraged the friendship and is now ordering Palpatine to cut it short. But he accepts this manipulation as part of what happens as Sith. Now, the assassins that Palpatine selects from include the Bandogora, the Mandalorians of Death Watch, and the Maladians. He chooses the Maladians because the Mandalorians have some iffy history going on, especially with regards to Galadran, I want to say, which there's some conflict between the Mandalorians and the Jedi right now, and so he's not confident in them. The Bandogora are a little too extreme and not as reliable as the Maladians, and so he goes with the Maladians. Now, Palpatine utilizes a Sait Pistage here, who's one of his several companions that he has. Uh, Sait Pistage is one, Kinsman Doriana is another, uh, and Grijatus, I can't remember the first name, is another aide who come with him from Naboo to various places as ambassador. Plagueis, in the meantime, while Palpatine is distracted by setting up this assassination, visits Kamino and asks for some Yinchori clones. Yinchor are a force-resistant race. They are unable to have their presence detected or minds read, which makes them great as potential warriors against Jedi. Now, the Kaminoans, including Kosai, who will in the future be a prime engineer of the clones in the Clone Wars, recommend Athorians and Kamasi if obedience is the primary goal. But Plagueis wants aggression and violence in addition to loyalty and obedience. And so Kamasi and Athorians, who are almost naturally pacifists, not the best choice. Humans are suggested, but Plagueis pushes forward on the Chori because of their massive natural advantage from their resistance to the Force. Despite their general lack of obedience, he feels that if, at the very least, he can point them in the right direction, he can get something out of it. He mentions in his role as Hego Damask that he'll fund anything necessary for vehicles as vessels as manufactured by Rothana Heavy Manufacturing. That's the company that in the future will create ATTs, LAATs, and Acclimator-class cruisers. I wonder if it's possible that he put in the order for these ships now, some 30 years before the Clone Wars, rather than later on, closer to when the order for the clone army is put in. I don't know. We'll find out, or we won't, but I'm curious about that. In any case, Vidar Kim is killed trying to develop a relationship with his son. Uh, since the rest of his family was killed, he's like, wait, I do still have direct lineage. I do have direct family. I want to reach out to my son who's an adult now and hasn't known me since he was a baby and actually has never known me. Um, but anyways, yeah, since I do have this comment... The death of his family was about as much of an accident as the Death Star was a mining vessel. Love that. I felt very clever. In any case, 
Vidar is killed and Ronhar survives and before he can question the assassin, the Meladian kills herself. Now, at the funeral, which Palpatine attends because he was the mentee of Vidar, Palpatine speaks with Ronhar and begins to develop a bond. He also, this is important, he now interacting directly with Jedi needs to hide his presence. And the way he does that is by turning off one of his senses. To hide, one must be visible in the Force. You can't block your presence entirely, or that fosters too many questions. A Jedi will see your physical presence, but not detect you in the Force and be like, how are you doing this? Are you using the Force? Why are you hiding yourself? You must be a Sith. And then the lightsaber goes vroom, and then the Jedi goes slash slash, and you are in two pieces. Now, on the other hand, you can't be a forceful presence. You can't actively hide because using that energy to suppress yourself or to create another aura is that will be seen. And so you must slip into the flow of the force and exist in it, but not active in any way. It's kind of like trying to hide in a pool just by like sitting on the bottom of the pool. If you're like swimming around trying to avoid notice, you're going to kick up waves and disturb the surface of it. And you can't be on the surface because then you'll be seen. Now, Zana, when she went to the Jedi Temple during her apprenticeship, was able to cast a Sith sorcery spell that made her aura read as though it were light. She presented a different aura, which is a spell or a thing that she did through the Force before she entered the temple and powered from within. And that may be technology that was lost. As mentioned, the Essence Drain, or sorry, not Essence Drain, Rite of Essence Transfer was lost many years previously, and that's something we'll touch upon shortly. Even though I don't like it, it makes me sad, it ruins one of my headcanons that all of the Jedi are in Palpatine. But, in any case, Palpatine offers an alliance. Ron Hart has always been interested in diplomacy and politics, and by forming an alliance with Palpatine, Ron Har will gain insight into the Senate. And Palpatine will gain knowledge of the Jedi and their, he says he's doing it to gain their insight on moral and ethical issues. And what he's really doing is trying to figure out ways to kill all of them. So maybe he's looking for ways to take advantage of their stance on moral and ethical issues? TBD. Meanwhile, there's just a lot of back and forth in this. Like we have the assassination happening and the funeral happening interwoven into that. Plagueis is on Camino, and now he's on Sereno, homeworld of Count Dooku. There he meets Jocasta Nu, Master Dooku, Jedi Master Sifo Dyas, and Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn. Now, all of these here are present for the purposes of negotiations or mediating a conflict on Sereno. Jocasta Nu is the archivist of the Jedi Archives. Dooku is a Padawan or previous Padawan or previous apprentice of Yoda. Sifo Dyas is one of Dooku's allies and closest confidants, and Qui-Gon Jinn is an ex-apprentice or previous apprentice of Dooku. There's a hot minute where Plagueis considers Dooku as a replacement apprentice, but he doesn't want to undermine Sidious or the trust that they have. Instead, he wants to lean on Dooku to create a schism in the Jedi. Plagueis does consider it because Palpatine is drunk on power and success. He's not run into significant challenges, and the Force has a way of undermining those who get too cocky. And so Plagueis is thinking of backup plans in case something goes wrong with Palpatine, not an apprentice with which to replace Palpatine, because he's happy with what Palpatine is doing and where he's going. Plus, trying to go after a Jedi Master is a tricky proposition, given that, you know, they're a Jedi Master, and if they talk to too many people, 
you're done for. Whereas a 17-year-old kid who's alienated from his family, much easier prospect. And once you've had your claws dug into him for a decade, even better. Now, Plagueis knows that a Bananite Sith would wave this in their apprentice's face as a challenge, but Plagueis wants to be more subtle and he doesn't actually want to undermine Palpatine, so he doesn't say anything. He wants to begin to suborn Dooku so that he can be turned to an apprentice should Palpatine fail, or can be otherwise used as a tool or resource among the Jedi. Of course, by not telling Palpatine about this, if Palpatine does find out, it becomes super awkward because then Palpatine asks, hey, why did you meet with Jedi and not tell me? Are you thinking of turning one of them? Are you undermining me and trying to hide it? I'm concerned now. Now, in this conversation, this early interaction between Plagueis, Dooku, and Sifo-Dyas, Plagueis pushes the two of them into agreeing that an army could be useful for the Republic. They don't actually require a whole lot of pushing. It's more of leading them down a logical path to, and therefore you agree that the Republic needs an army, right? And they're like, kind of, yeah. The advantages of having an army are, include being able to protect members and deny members right to arms like the Trade Federation, but the Roussan Reformation from Bane's time prevents the formation of a classic army. Now, they're interrupted before Plagueis can convince them to take any sort of action. In this exchange, Qui-Gon accuses Damask Holdings of inciting discontent by supporting the Trade Federation and others, and Plagueis counters with, we bring prosperity and technological advancement. It's While some people do suffer in the short term, long term greater benefit. Both are goals of the Sith, elevating others, but also beginning to undermine the Republic. So while Qui-Gon's on point, he's not 100% there. Now, Qui-Gon also argues that Jedi are bringing the greater good, and Damask Holdings frequently an antagonistic force in the various conflicts. The Jedi have the Force, and Plagueis claims to be a mere mortal, trying his best to help. He says the Muns may have cornered the market on finance, but the Jedi have cornered the market on ethics. And it's very, very dangerous when only one group can say what is good and righteous and what is not. Qui-Gon leaves the conversation, he's just like, you know what, I don't want to talk with you about this anymore, and just walks off, which is, you know, one, power move for Qui-Gon, and two, if that's a thing that you need to do, set your boundaries and stick to them. But we return to the conversation that Plagueis wants. Both Dooku and sifo are complaining about the inefficiency of the Senate and its corruption. The current Chancellor, Darius, allows for a state of great corruption and graft. He's compared to Ixis Valorum, who was selected by the members of a gathering on Sojourn many years prior, so Darius might be another Sith pick for Chancellor, although not as influential or directly impactful as Palpatine will be down the line. Now, while Plagueis pressures sifo and Dooku on how the Jedi and the Republic would respond to discontent or fracturing schism, sifo says that there can't be a war without armies, and he says the outer regions don't have enough resources to develop a large army. And then he realizes what he said, and he's like, I didn't mean to imply that the Republic is suppressing the outer regions and to have any ability to self-determine by preventing them from having the economic growth that would allow them to finance and have their own army and be able to defend themselves and he's like wait a second that's a terrible thing the republic is doing that that might actually actively be happening what are we doing he doesn't say that out loud it's not expressed explicitly but i think it's an idea that was planted into the minds of both sifo and dooku in this conversation the outer regions are discontent but they have no voice and no presence the best they can do is have the trade federation speak for them 
and the Trade Federation just wants to exploit the outer planets. And they're not supported by the Jedi or the Republic or any of the economic powerhouses. And so their only recourse is demonstration. The only sort of demonstration that's going to get any sort of attention near the core is violent demonstration. At least that's the theory that many people on the Outer Rim have at this time. Dooku, and particularly sifo agree that if push came to shove, the Republic would defend itself. But Plagueis says, you and what army? Now, towards the end of this conversation, Plagueis mentions sub which is a mining planet that uses clones. They actually have shovel hands. They're genetically modified to have shovel hands. They don't need tools because their hands are just shovels, which is weird, but okay, you do you, sub uh, but doesn't quite get the chance to specify Camino as a resource. This whole conversation, Plagueis is looking somewhat altruistic. He's a supporter of the good in the galaxy. Now, they may think he's trying to make a credit on war profiteering, but the veneer of I am trying to improve the well-being on all of these planets in the Republic is corrupt is enough, and they agree with the fundamental assertion that the Republic is corrupt, that they engage with him. Plus, he's educated and well-spoken and somewhat charismatic and relatively influential. He's able to have meaningful impact, possibly more than a single Jedi can, because of his economic power. We return to Coruscant, and there's an election to see if Felucia, Mercana, and others can have representation in the Senate. They're company planets of the Trade Federation, so it's essentially allowing the Trade Federation to have more seats. Palpatine is introduced to Jedi Masters Dooku and sifo who just returned from Sereno, by way of Ronhard, his new friend. He tells them to their face he is very good at disguises. He gives the context that it's his age, but he also just cloaked himself in the Force and disguised his Sith identity. When Plagueis approaches, Palpatine can't sense him in the Force, even though he knows he's there. Furthermore, Palpatine recognizes that Plagueis and these two Jedi just all came from Sereno. And now Palpatine is questioning if Plagueis was going behind his back to undermine or replace him. He remembers the line that Plagueis said earlier, even a Jedi can be turned to the dark side. At the end of the conversation, Palpatine tells Dooku, quote, one can't very well stand in the way of destiny, end quote. To which he responds, and Dooku looks between Plagueis and Palpatine as he says this, the will of the Force begets uncommon fellowships. And I wonder how much Dooku sees. There's a tie between Plagueis and Palpatine, but does he sense the dark side? Does he think that they have what he wants, which is the power to change the way the galaxy is run? I don't know. I think Dooku is really, really insightful, but I don't know how much information he actually has. Now, after the vote, Palpatine goes to a meeting where he's kidnapped and taken in front of a hollow projector where Senator Pack's team of Malastair is ready with a threat. He's going to kill Palpatine for his connection with Hego Damasque, aka Plagueis, who a decade earlier and since has stymied him and his planet's wants and needs. First, it was supporting Gardula the Hutt and her pod racing on Tatooine. The second was selling the energy and the plasma with the Trade Federations through Naboo. He's just fed up with Hego Damask and Damask Holdings. Palpatine is almost ready to use the Force to break himself free and kill the guards holding him there when the Chani Sun Guards, who are Hego Damask's personal bodyguards, arrive and rescue him. Plagueis is pleased that Pack's team has taken action and tracks the hollow call back to a space station and sends his bodyguards after that. 
then returns to the induction ritual for his second-in-command of Damask Holdings, named Larsh Hill, into the Order of the Canted Circle. Larsh Hill has come up as a couple times as, like, an aide or assistant second-in-command of Damask Holdings, member of the board, that sort of thing, but is not a particularly significant character in my mind. Now, during the kidnap attempt, Palpatine reflects on fear and recognizes he should feel it here, but now he has the invulnerability that he believed he had as a kid, that the Force will protect him. And I'm curious to know if he had a, the same or a similar thought when the Jedi came to arrest him in Revenge of the Sith, or when Vader turned on him in Return of the Jedi. Now, seeing Palpatine's success in this attack, Plagueis feels like he's redeemed himself from the minor gaffe in the assassination attempt on Vidar Kim. The assassination was fine, but the assassin was almost approached by a Jedi, and that would have been very problematic in many ways. In any case, Plagueis sees Palpatine as redeemed and is ready to invite him into his deeper secrets, by which Plagueis means his research into immortality, not the grand plan of the Sith, which is their long-term ultimate goal to overthrow the Republic and take down the Jedi. That Plagueis and Palpatine have been together with on since page one. Well, not page one, because they didn't know each other on page one of this book. But, you know, since they met, they were both on Republic needs to be overthrown. We're going to take charge. We're going to fix this thing. I think that the immortality should just be a tool or a stepping stone on the way to galactic conquest, not the big super goal, the secret thing that you're working on in darkness. That's secondary to this greater goal of getting rid of the Jedi. In any case, the Order of the Canted Circle is pretty much the Illuminati. They just like having like a fraternity of secret handshakes and code words, and they don't actually do anything because they're all members of organizations that control the galaxy anyways. They still go to like the gatherings on Sojourn under Plagueis' watchful eye, where they do actually make meaningful decisions. This fraternity is just a way for them to relax. Plagueis himself is not a member of this organization because he doesn't really want the members of the organization digging into his personal history, but because of his wealth and the influence he has on other members, he's allowed in as an honorary guest without doing the background check. In any case, during the induction ritual, the Maladian assassins, like the ones hired to kill Vidar Kim, although possibly a different sect because they are apparently a very factionalized group, they attack and kill most of the people there, including nearly all of the Muns on the planet. They were disguised wearing the robes and hoods and cowls of members of the Order of the Canted Circle, so many people who were not members of Damask Holdings were not present at this ritual. Now, Plagueis breaks out the force like Palpatine was about to, and kills all or almost all of the assassins, but is seriously, seriously injured, including, I believe, a razor disc to the throat that cut out a bunch, and he's able to use the Force to keep himself afloat. Palpatine figures out that this is a, the attack on him was just a distraction, and chases after Plagueis, or goes to Plagueis, saves him, staves off the last of the assassins, and then goes after Pax's team, who's not on the space station, but instead at his home celebrating a win. Palpatine sabers everyone, burns them to death, good times. Now, the Jedi are drawn to the Phobosi district, which is where the Order of the Canted Circle has its headquarters, because of Plagueis' outburst in the Force. They report the deaths to the police, because the police weren't aware of this until this time, who investigate and determine that Plagueis likely survived. Now, Plagueis, while he does survive, 
was seriously injured in the neck and throat and needs a face mask to continue to breathe. This adds him to a list of many powerful Sith, including Darth Malgus and Darth Vader, of course, who have a face mask to manage injuries. It's not as common among Jedi, possibly because of their stronger inclination towards healing. Now, Plagueis inducts Sidious into his science, into his research, the quest for immortality, and to create forceful life. And Sidious is only slightly put off by it. He doesn't say anything at the time, but he's just like, this seems like a distraction from what we're actually trying to accomplish. Plagueis does also ramp up Palpatine's involvement in the grand plan of overthrowing the Republic and the Jedi, telling him about the Yin Chor and the Kaminoans. Now, Sidious also proposes the creation of a Sith tool, someone trained in the Sith arts but focused on stealth and combat, but not someone who could challenge their partnership. Somebody who, if they need to, say, eliminate the chamber of a senator and his minions and allies, they could send instead of exposing themselves directly. A tool for specific missions that have a high degree of importance. They select, of course, Maul. Plagueis approves. This reduces the exposure that both Palpatine and Plagueis face, but is someone who can theoretically be trusted to complete tasks. At this point, we're roughly two-thirds of the way through the book as we enter the third section, Mastery, from 34 to 32 years before the Battle of Yavin. Two decades pass, and Palpatine is now a senior senator, well-respected. Palpatine is seen as a genuine centrist and is a confidant for many, including Supreme Chancellor Finnis Valorum and Jedi Master Dooku. Yes, this Finnis Valorum is the son of Ixes Valorum, who was the Chancellor when corruption began to rise, and they're both heirs to Tarsus Valorum, who was the first non-Jedi Chancellor who took the seat during the time of Darth Bane. Finnis Valorum is also rivals with Ranulf Tarkin, father of Wilhuff Tarkin, who of course is Grand Moff Tarkin, and an ally of Palpatine. The Valorms and Tarkins are both powerful families of Ariadu and have had a long-time rivalry. Now, seven years prior to this, so during the 20-year intermission, uh, roughly 41 years before the Battle of Yavin, nine years before the Phantom Menace, Sidious and Plagueis had a breakthrough in the manipulation of the Force and midichlorians, unspecified in nature, but has the potential to have great galactic consequences. I'm not going to bury the lead here like James Luceno does, this lines up exactly with Anakin's conception and or birth. Neat. Moving on, the outer systems have gotten louder over the past two decades. They want military or paramilitary to protect them from pirates, raiders, and massive trade corporations because the problems have only gotten worse. The Republic, namely Supreme Chancellor Finnis Valorum, doesn't want a Republic army because of the Rusan reformations. While the Jedi are brought up and recommended as a potential paramilitary or military force, the Jedi won't be able to serve as an army. They're already spread thin as is, and there were issues on Galadran. Now, Galadran is something that comes up a couple times, and at Galadran, a corrupt governor set the Jedi up against falsely accused Mandalorians. Many died on both sides. I think it was 11 Jedi and most of the Mandalorians, and it was considered a tragedy. I think this is where Jango Fett's origin story starts, but I'm not 100% sure, and I believe it happens in the comics. I think there's an interaction between Jedi Master Dooku and Jango Fett at this time. And there's this actually really cool scene where the two of them are sitting at opposite ends of the table. And they're like, yeah, we're going to put our weapons in the middle of the table. So hands free. And of course, Jedi Master Dooku can use the force to reclaim his lightsaber. And so when tensions rise, he pulls his saber to him. But Jango has like super powerful magnets, either in his blasters or his gauntlets. And so he can just 
essentially force pull his blasters back into his hands. And it's a really sweet moment that I have not forgotten, even though I can only remember like this one page from this one comic I read two decades ago. In any case, to fund an outer system defense force, somebody would need to pay for it. The core doesn't want to pay for it. The outer systems can't pay for it. And so Valorum suggests the free trade sector, which is kind of out of the Republic, but where the Trade Federation's mother holds sway, those corporations that operate both in and out of the Republic can fit this bill because then, yeah, they can just take it. It's fine. Nobody cares about them. There's some argument. But at the very least, the concept of having an army or militarizing the Trade Federation and their allies has been broached. After this Senate meeting, Palpatine holds a party at his apartments that includes the Chancellor and many senators as guests. He's moved to a larger apartment after Ars Varuna has ascended to the seat of the monarchy in Naboo as Topalo has stepped down. Palpatine is widely liked because he is seen as an authentic centrist, also known as a global suck-up. He's popular with both Outer Rim and core populations as a consequence of Naboo's location and culture, and also being very disingenuous, centrist, and noncommittal in his attitudes. Naboo is located in the Outer Rim, but has the sensibilities, aka elitism, of the core, and so can manage to get along with everybody and find something to agree with with pretty much every senator or representative of a planet. This party pretty much just shows the influence that Palpatine has. He is able to invite the Supreme Chancellor to a party at his apartment, and the Supreme Chancellor shows up along with many other senators. And Palpatine, even though the Chancellor is there and more senior senators are there, he's still seen as a gracious host and somebody who can make things happen. Later on, however, in a conversation with Palpatine, Plagueis asserts that the Jedi are wrong and will fail, because if their actions were not the will of the Force, how could they be winning against the more numerous Jedi? Again, the Sith are leashed to destiny. Plagueis feels as though they are entitled to this success, which is weird given his earlier statements about breaking free of destiny. Or not necessarily breaking free of destiny, but uncertainty is the first step towards self-determination. He is pro free will, not somebody who is a slave to destiny. And so it's kind of weird, and I'm not certain. There seems to be a minor conflict within his own ideology. Now, while Palpatine has said that one can't stand in the way of destiny, I feel that he has more of an ideal of free will and imposing his want on the galaxy and the Force, whereas Plagueis is more beholden to prophecy and subservient to the Force. Now, Varuna as mentioned, who succeeded to Apollo as king, has started to invest in a military so he can strike out against the Trade Federation and end their deal. Plagueis and Sidious discuss having a more pliable leader running Naboo, uh, and they talk about the current governor of Thede, minority leader Padme Naberi. Varuna's military at this point in time is a few starfighters, maybe as much as a squadron, with two more squadrons in a year, totaling 36 starfighters to defend a planet. He wants to break free of the Trade Federation, but this is occurring as the Trade Federation is likely to get the opportunity and legality to arm their ships to defend against pirates. And it also helps them subjugate Outer Rim worlds like, say, Naboo, who have a military of 36 small starfighters as compared to the many larger freighters that the Trade Federation has access to. It's in this window of time that Plagueis allows Darth Venomous to finally die. He's been kept alive for 30 years, uh, 
and is finally allowed to die. And then Plagueis resurrects him. He is able to manipulate the flow of midichlorians in and out of the body of Venomous, bringing him to life, death, and back and forth several times. Plagueis senses an increased strength of the Force in himself and Insidious, and furthermore, Dark Cloud has suffused the Force so that even mild sensitives can detect it, possibly as a consequence of this unnatural repeated resurrection. There's also the resolution of the Yinchor Crisis. Now, I haven't mentioned this before, but it's something that Plagueis set up several decades ago, getting the Yinchori to become part of this Senate, welcomed into the Senate and the Republic, and then not long after that, they expressed discontent with the way of the Republic and very quickly seceded again from the Republic. The Yinchor are still unhappy with the outcome of their time in the Republic, and they blame it on the Jedi. So as the crisis comes to a head, Yinchori warriors attack the Jedi Temple. Maul is tasked with observing this, and he feels that if he had accompanied them, all of the Jedi in the Jedi Temple would have died. I find, and Plagueis finds, that Sidious, or Palpatine, has overinflated Maul's ego, and that he's maybe a little bit overconfident in his abilities. Now, Sidious does at this point give Darth Maul the title of Darth, essentially a treat for being a well-behaved dog. He says, for your obedience and loyalty, not for your actions or bravery or for achieving the ideals of the Sith. It's, you did what we told you to do, so I'll give you this promotion. Now, this answers a question from a viewer, thank you, Matthew, about how Darth Maul was running around and doing things with both Darth Plagueis and Sidious existing, and how it didn't break the rule of two. It's a sop of a title awarded to a false apprentice. Now, of course, if Maul was a genuine apprentice, it's acceptable to actually have an apprentice and bring them to your final showdown, or to begin training them as you gear up for that final showdown, so long as you don't utilize them in the fight. You can see Darth Bane and Darth Cognus fighting Zana, although Bane is the master in that situation with two apprentices. But as I've mentioned, the rule of two was essentially made to be broken by the Sith. And so it's okay to have an apprentice as long as you're not using them to subvert the philosophy of one versus one advancement. If it, you do a team up with your apprentice to take down your master, that's where the rule of two falls apart and that's where you're breaking philosophy having an apprentice that you can begin to train just so that you're ready when you kill your master or if you fail give your master somebody to work with that's okay at this point in time we're getting closer and closer to the phantom menace and Sidious gets in contact with Newt Gunray of the Trade Federation and offers a partnership this is very much in his guise as Darth Sidious and not as Palpatine as a gesture of good faith, he sends Darth Maul off to Dorvala to make things better for the Nemodians. This is the plot of Saboteur, the short story that we covered two weeks back. As a quick recap, the two companies that export Lawmite ore from Dorvala have a small conflict that Maul accelerates so that both lose all of their shipping capability and must, one, merge, and two, partner with the Trade Federation to make any profit at all. After Palpatine does that, Plagueis has a conversation with Jabba the Hutt, who lets him know that the Bando Gora have been attacking the cartel leadership of the Black Sun, which is kind of a branch of Hego Damask's criminal connections. Plagueis isn't so interested in that, but what he is interested in is the fact that Jabba reveals that the Bando Gora are now being led by former Jedi Homari Vosa, who was previously an apprentice of Dooku. 
Shortly thereafter, back on Coruscant and away from Sojourn, Jedi Master Dooku visits his friend Palpatine and mentions that he's on the verge of leaving the Jedi Order. His old apprentice, Komari Fosa, was sent on a mission that he felt she wasn't ready for, and she was lost, presumed dead. Of course, we know through what Jabba has told us and through Maul Lockdown that instead of falling in combat to the Bandogora, she fell to the dark side and is now the leader of them. Now, even before that, Dooku and Komari, among others, were people who went to Galadran, where they were given the false information by the governor that some Mandalorians had been causing problems, and when the 11 Jedi died, and nearly all, if not all, of the Mandalorians died, Komari was in the midst of the battle, and she was infatuated with Dooku, was romantically interested, and was murderously violent during the confrontation as sort of a way to display her combat prowess to Dooku, who is very well known as a lightsaber master. Now, there's a lot, so much in this scene about Dooku and his relationship with Komari Fosa and his other apprentice Qui-Gon Jinn and the Jedi, and he sees his two apprentices, both as failures. There's stuff here about the Lost and a schism, several pages of raw exposition that set up so much, and I'm gonna get into that in another section all about Dooku because it is so dang tight. I do want to say that when Dooku leaves, he says, if one more Jedi dies, if one more Jedi dies because of the indolence of the Republic and moral equivocation on the part of the Council, I will leave the temple and not look back. He just gives Palpatine the key to his succession. He just says, kill one more Jedi and I'm out. Palpatine, from this scene, questions if he needs to inform Plagueis of this conversation. He feels that hiding information from his master is apostasy, but... Zonon provides a clear counterexample, as does Plagueis himself hiding his research from Tenebris. If they're partners, if Plagueis and Palpatine are partners, it makes sense to share that information, but Plagueis is also hiding plenty. But come on, Palpatine, you are a Sith. Think. You're supposed to hide the information until it's valuable for you to share it. Sit on this. Almost directly from there, Palpatine pushes harder on Naboo. He visits the parents of Padme on Coruscant as they're doing relief work for refugees, a cause that Palpatine supported, but Sidious probably found repulsive, and pushes for her to campaign for Queen. Padme was a member of the Legislative Youth Program at 8, a full apprentice legislator at 11, and enjoys more support at Governor of Thebes than any in generations at age 13. While she is 13, Younger queens have been elected, so he kind of pushes that objection out of the way. Now, this is a bit of a tangent, but... So, the relationship between Anakin and Padme is weird. Some people say that it's wildly inappropriate given the age difference, and that's reasonable because she appears to be and is treated like an adult in Phantom Menace. She doesn't look like she's 14 years old. She doesn't look like she's, like, a high schooler or late middle schooler. Rather than being, like... So when we cut to Clone Wars, it looks like, from our experience, that she should be in her, like, if she was in her late teens or early 20s in Phantom Menace, it looks like she's probably in her 30s, and Anakin's just 19 then, and there's this 10-year gap, and it feels weird, but there's a, a five-year gap. And, and so it's more like a kid in elementary school, late elementary school or middle school, falling for, like, his high school freshman babysitter, which is weird and not something you should like support and encourage but it's not wildly wildly appropriate it's not like she's in her 20s when Anakin is nine later on when they meet in the Clone Wars 
he's late teens, early 20s, she's early mid 20s. It's not a crazy discrepancy. It's not like they're the same age, but they're not wildly different like some people think they are. In any case, that's not super important to this plot at all in any way, shape, or form. Anyways, as the election campaigns for the monarchy climax, Palpatine visits Naboo and speaks with King Varuna, who is mad at the Sith, whom he doesn't know is the Sith, who are undermining him. He threatens to attack Plagueis, and Palpatine does not warn his master due to discontent with Plagueis' recent activities. For the past two decades, Plagueis has been mostly sequestered on Sojourn and Abora, doing science, not pushing on the grand plan. He's been working on his immortality thing. Now, other allies of Varuna at this meeting that Palpatine has include Alexei Garin of the Black Sun, Gardula the Hutt, and Vandogora. Varuna has surrounded himself with thugs and is definitely turning into a petty tyrant with delusions of grandeur. This happens as Palpatine is on his way to the trade summit at Ariadu, which happens towards the tail end of Cloak of Deception. This is also after Lockdown, where Palpatine had Darth Maul acquire a nuclear device that was delivered to the Bando Goro. Now, the next thing that happens is several cruisers attack Sojourn. Plagueis is not surprised when it happens, just a little bit surprised that it happened when it did. He flies away in the stealth ship Infiltrator designed by Sinar, which is later named the Scimitar when it's given to Darth Maul. Sojourn is nuked, which is another thing that Plagueis didn't expect. This nuke, of course, as mentioned, was acquired for the Bantagora by Maul on behalf of Palpatine in lockdown. Still no explanation on why Irem Radik was making tons of red lightsabers, like that's just still not addressed at all. Palpatine escapes via the Star Jewel, owned by Jabba, which was also present at Cog Hive 7 at the time of the exchange in lockdown, but unaware of the transaction doesn't really have any bearing here. Finally, Palpatine, when he meets up with Plagueis, says, I'm so sorry, I didn't warn you. I didn't think Varuna would have the guts. And what he really means is, aw, he missed. I'm kind of disappointed. But whatever, move on, you don't have any clue. We get hit with a quick summary of the consequences of Cloak of Deception. The summit on Ariadu occurred while Plagueis was attacked, and so we know that the Trade Federation is going to be allowed to arm up, but they're going to be taxed a little bit. Plagueis also sets up a plot for Vengeance. He'll deal with Varuna personally, who has abdicated to Padme because he's kind of shaken in his boots and is like, you know what, I'll just abdicate and let you do what you want with my planet as long as you let me live. And he thinks that that'll be enough to quell the temper of Hego Damask. And it might be enough to quell the temper of Hego Damask, but it is certainly not enough to quell the temper of the Dark Lord Darth Plagueis. Maul will take out the Black Sun. Finally, we get to hear about this infamous Black Sun mission. And Jabba has free reign to deal with Gardula the Hutt. And eventually, maybe, Dooku will look towards Kamari Bosun, the Bandogora, and everybody who is involved on this attack in Plagueis, excepting Palpatine, will be taken care of. Of course, the first step that happens is Plagueis going to Varuna's villa on Naboo. He breaks in and drains the midichlorians from him, and as a consequence, Varuna dies. It seems like Plagueis takes some of Varuna's vitality with him. He's been healing and recovering more so than you might expect naturally over the time, and it may be because of his influence over life and death in the midichlorians themselves. The Force is anywhere there is life, and apparently without the Force there is no life. Now, 
This isn't wholly true. You can see the Yuzon Vong and a few other force repellent species like the Islarmi and Ysalamiri. Y-S-A-L-A-M-I-R-I. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to just like say salami real bad. And there's some lizards that repulse the force. In any case, there are also the Yinchor who reject the force or not reject the force, repulse the force or aren't affected by it. And they still live, clearly. So it's not quite a one-to-one -one of the force existing and life existing, but there's a pretty strong correlation. And if somebody is attuned to the force or attached to the force through midichlorians and you take that away from them, that seems like a pretty effective way of killing them. Now, Palpatine finds out from Maul that he revealed himself to the last of the Black Sun when he was killing them and chides Maul. He then finds out that Plagueis revealed himself to Varuna and is similarly mad at Plagueis for his impropriety. It's far from the first time he's doubted Plagueis, but he expresses opinion on what should have been done and judges Plagueis to his face. Speaking with Maul, he said, When you face someone strong in the Force, you must remain focused, even when you're convinced that your opponent is incapacitated. Then is not the time to bask in the glory of your victory or draw out the moment. You must deliver a killing strike and be done with it. Reserve your self-praise for after the fact, or you will suffer more than a hand wound. Of course, Maul Maul accepts this lesson. Only a few weeks later, he stands and gloats over Obi-Wan on Naboo and gets cut in half for his troubles. Now, the blockade of Naboo is almost set up, and Palpatine guesses that Padme will surrender within a month, because she won't be able to bear seeing her people hurt and starve. They begin to relocate the droid factories to Geonosis from other planets, and they further develop their plan for eliminating the Jedi. I'll cover this part of the grand plan later on because it's a larger discussion, like I'm going to talk about Dooku and so many other things. In any case, after this discussion, a lot of discussions in this book, Palpatine discovers that Hath Monchar is missing. The next paragraph is a two-week time skip to the end of Shadowhunter, where Palpatine and Plagueis are on a space station schmoozing and networking towards the end of the term of the Supreme Chancellor and preparing for the election of the next Supreme Chancellor, when Lorne Pavan delivers the holocron directly to the hands of Palpatine. The holocron, of course, being the thing that contains all of their plans, including the blockade of Naboo and the fact that there are Sith involved. Maul's devastation on Coruscant, that trail of destruction, is noted by the two of them, but he's called to the station where Palpatine can reclaim the holocron. This is a very minor thing and is just, like, played for laughs very briefly. What's more important is at this banquet and schmooze fest, it's noted that Palpatine is a popular pick for Chancellor because, in part, he's been untouched by corruption or scandal for two decades. However, there's another more interesting conversation occurring beyond all this, hmm, who do you think would be good for Chancellor? Well, I think Palpatine. Well, I think Bellanters. Well, I think M.E.T. Plagueis leaks to sifo that the Trade Federation and other Outer Rim organizations are stockpiling weapons and suggests that the Republic needs an army now. He even goes so far as to mention that the Kaminoans would create an army for a Jedi. Of course, he, being the philanthropist that he is, would fund it, even if it were never used. For the good of the Republic, of course. sifo is concerned that the Kaminoans might try to create forceful clones, but Plagueis insists that that's not possible, per his understanding. There are some forceful clones later, including in the comics, one Emperor Palpatine, but that's not something that's relevant here. Sifo-Dyas has many concerns in addition to this potential army that's being raised. He's worried about Dooku, who called the Jedi Order self-righteous 
in one of his many rants about the Jedi and the Republic. And again, hearkening back to the, quote, the unintentional, unmistakable, self-righteous superiority of the Jedi. But this time, it's coming from a Jedi famed for his, quote, signature look of superiority. And I just like that little bit of coincidence, irony, not sure exactly what it is. A few days later, in his office, Supreme Chancellor Finnis Valorum is confiding in Palpatine and asking for help. Somebody, apparently, is undermining him in his final days as Chancellor and ruining his legacy, spending hundreds of thousands, if not billions or billions of credits, to just cut his term a few days short. Of course, one of the main individuals behind that effort is sitting across the desk from him. Valorum cries, Has any Chancellor had such a hard time as I? He also feels that he's useless to the Republic if he can't be exonerated, which is exactly where the Sith want him. Wildly ineffectual so the Senate does nothing, and so that the Outer Rim systems become even more despondent and discouraged. Now, Valorum is starting to piece things together. His family owns a shipbuilding concern, and he's seeing a growth in money going to that shipbuilding concern and others, as well as weapon manufacturers, and they're all tied to these various organizations that eventually do become the Confederacy of Independent Systems. Now, before he gets to his fever pitch and says this is what's happening and points to his conspiracy board behind him, he's interrupted when a call comes in from Naboo. The blockade is in place, and Padme Amidala is like, we need help. Send whatever you can. Palpatine immediately offers to be the hero and says, I will go to the Trade Federation and tell them that this behavior is wildly inappropriate and they must immediately stop. And of course, that will be useless because he'll then get on the phone as Sidious and be like, hey, I know Senator Palpatine came to you and said you should stop. And you're not going to stop because I have things on Palpatine. I know his entire life. I control him. So much duplicity. Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan, his apprentice, are sent to Naboo. Palpatine knows that if the two Jedi get to Newt Gunray, he'll fold, so they have to start the invasion early to distract the Jedi. This attempt is successful. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan go down to the planet and don't proceed to reach Newt Gunray. Now we're at the start of the Phantom Menace. Furthermore, Palpatine and Plagueis send Maul in case additional pressure needs to be applied to the Modians or they need to be protected from the Jedi or something along those lines. Now, using information from Jabba the Hutt, the two Sith are able to leak information about Ainley Team, who's the heir to Pax Team, the senator from Malastare who tried to kill Plagueis and Palpatine a couple decades earlier. Uh, and so she's shown to be very corrupt, which Bailey and Tilly's, uh, and Ainley and Bail being the two primary other candidates for Supreme Chancellor, Bailey and Tilly's pounces on it. Ainley is disgraced because she was too corrupt and was caught, both of which problematic. And Bale shows his colors as a paladin to the Senate body that thrives on graft, bribery, and basic corruption. They're like, wait a second, we don't want him in charge. He would make us stop. This Palpatine guy, though, he seems reasonable. He understands that there's a way how things are done. And while he's untouched by corruption, while he is not somebody who accepts a bribe, He's also somebody who's willing to look the other way when bribes are happening around him because that's how, it's the oil that makes the Republic run so smoothly. And so with that, the two elements of competition for the role of Supreme Chancellor out of the picture. Padme survives an attack from Maul on Tatooine and makes it to Coruscant. Maul is chosen to attack 
Padme on Tatooine rather than using Jabba because they don't want to trust Jabba to this and it could get Dane, like, it could get a little iffy and they're okay with revealing the Sith to the galaxy at large. They have pressed the big red go button. There, on Coruscant, Padme is able to put forward a vote of no confidence in Supreme Chancellor Valorum. This allows Palpatine to look somber and reluctant, not eager and pressing for the role. It'd be very weird if he called for a vote of no confidence and then said, oh, by the way, I guess you could pick me as Chancellor. That's a little bit too self-serving. But when his queen says, you're going to become the next Supreme Chancellor, I'm ordering you to do this, I'm going to, I'm voting that guy out, we're going to get rid of him, somebody better is going to do it, and you've been doing a good job for me, so I think you're a good fit. It just looks, it's a much better look for him. Then, with the vote taken care of, or the vote of no confidence, we have not yet elected the next Supreme Chancellor, Palpatine and Dooku have a conversation in Palpatine's office, where they both say they believe the Republic needs to be torn down in order to re be rebuilt, and Palpatine is about to become Supreme Chancellor and be in a position to affect actual change. In this conversation, Dooku is rather confrontational. He says that this is rather convenient, that the crisis has benefited Palpatine rather strongly, politically speaking. Of course, when pushed, he admits that if Palpatine said he were taking advantage of the situation, he would approve. Dooku also reveals that Qui-Gon believes the boy who won the pod race, which allowed the Jedi and the Queen to flee Tatooine, is very powerful in the Force, and Qui-Gon believes that this kid, Anakin, is the potential prophesied one of the Jedi. This is not something that Palpatine had heard of before. He hadn't heard of this prophecy, and so he's somewhat surprised, but is curious, and he's starting to put things together. He's like, wait a second, a kid who was conceived in the Force nine years ago when Plagueis and I were doing science experiments? Fascinating. Now, Dooku is disappointed in Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon Jinn is a proponent of the Living Force, but accepting this prophecy is of the unifying force, accepting destiny. Dooku feels that Qui-Gon's contradictions are a step too far, and accepting this kid, Anakin, into the Jedi Order is another misstep by the Council. Finally, Dooku adds that the Nemodians might be assisted by the Sith, and it's just like, hey, that's a thing that's happening that I feel like you should be aware of as our likely next Supreme Chancellor. And Palpatine's like, hmm, good looking out. Carry on. Plagueis, on the other hand, upon learning of Anakin, feels like Anakin is his progeny, as well as his punishment for daring to push against the Force so strongly. He feels that this is potentially a consequence for creating a rift, trying to create a tremor in the dark side. He rushes to Palpatine's office to see Anakin, but Anakin has been swept off to the Jedi Temple for his interview. He's unable to get to Anakin before he's taken away from the planet, but he sees him from a distance using macro binoculars, asking a question sternly or with great focus of Qui-Gon Jinn. I went back and watched Phantom Menace because that's where that quote happens. We don't actually hear from Obi-Wan or Anakin at all in this book because they're not important to Plagueis or Palpatine, at least for now. And two things are happening in that conversation between the stern-faced Anakin and the grandfatherly or avuncular Qui-Gon Jinn. The first is that Anakin doesn't want to be a bother, and Qui-Gon's like, don't worry, just stick with me, you'll be all right. And he says, your focus determines your reality, which is as true of the Sith observing Anakin as it is for Anakin and the other Jedi because of their ability with the Force. The second, Anakin says, I heard Master Yoda say something about midichlorians. Can you explain them to me? And then we get a lore dump from Qui-Gon Jinn about midichlorians. It's unnecessary detail for me, at least, because I know what midichlorians are. It's the organelles, the power of the Force, yada yada. It's 
this pseudoscience nonsense. And like without with midichlorians, there'd be no life, no force. And it's interesting. It's a very interesting moment because Anakin is in this moment being equally studious and equally interested in what midichlorians are and how they work as Plagueis is who's observing. Him. Of course, this is like, you know, a fourth grader being like, I want to learn more about math. And the professor who's been teaching at MIT or another prestigious technical school for decades, it's like, I want to solve one of the six unsolvable problems. Although I think some of them have been solved. I can't remember. I don't follow math that closely. In any case, Plagueis, the night before the election of the new Supreme Chancellor, lingers on the new meaning of rule of two as Supreme Chancellor and Hego Damask as co-chancellor. Instead of there is a rule that says there can only be two, it is there is a reign of two people. Very clever. I like this play on words. It's been sitting there for a while. I mean, I've read this book before and it just hasn't smacked me in the face and it's finally smacked me in the face. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's kind of clever. I actually like the twist that James Lucento has taken on this rule that had one very particular meaning and just turned it. Then as Sidious is leaving Plagueis' apartment at the end of the night or beginning of the morning, he turns on Plagueis and attacks him with the force. At first, Plagueis doesn't defend himself and Palpatine questions his master. He'd been healing and recovering from the assassination attempt two decades earlier, and had seemed to potentially reverse aging. Worried that Plagueis might just be toying with life and death and seeing how close he can get to dying before coming back, Palpatine just overpowers him and overloads him and tries to kill him. And while he says he's on the lookout, he does kind of monologue for a bit. Remember that moment a little bit earlier when he was like, criticizing Maul for gloating in front of when you face someone strong in the force you must remain focused this is not the time to bask in the glory of your victory or draw out the moment well with Plagueis still alive and at his mercy Palpatine goes through a little monologue Plagueis was the one who pushed him to commit patricide matricide and fratricide he shared some knowledge but withheld most as a means of manipulation and control he criticized the efforts of his apprentice and choked him to demonstrate superiority. He denigrated his apprentice for hiring an inept assassin and yet was almost killed by the same sect of assassins himself. He turned away from the grand plan to focus on himself and his egotistical quest for immortality for two decades. He criticized his apprentice for inculcating too much pride in his trained assassin while remaining wildly egocentric. He attempted to turn Palpatine, who was a peer and not a subordinate, into a mere messenger who had his apprentice reveal the Sith to a galaxy not through himself, but through his assassin, through his bully boy. Plagueis the Wise, who was, except for the part where he thought himself except for the rule of two. Plagueis the Wise, who forged the most powerful Sith Lord the galaxy has ever known, and yet who forgot to leave a place for himself, whose pride never allowed him to question that he would no longer be needed. Teacher, yes, but master, never. Palpatine claims that he never changed, and that Plagueis was just deluded by vanity, played by a master, played by the Sithari. Claims that all of the good ideas, all of the plans to bring about the ruination of the Jedi and the Republic, to suborn Dooku, to develop the clone army, to train Maul, he says all of those ideas were mine. And it's just a wonderful monologue, and highly, like, great monologue, it's towards the end of the book, we've spoiled everything at this point. Read the whole book, but I like that monologue. The next time I have to learn monologue for audition so you know literally never 
I'm going to come out swinging with this. It's a delightful deconstruction of Pelagius and elevation of Palpatine. It's a huge ego trip. And the whole thing is wildly unnecessary. He should kill Pelagius and be done with it, not leave him gasping for breath. If this had been the time of Bane or any time before Darth Gravid, who we'll get to in a minute, he would be in so much trouble because of the rite of essence transfer may occur and he might have been taken out. When your enemy is down, you finish them off. Ender knows that from Ender's game. Don't show mercy, especially in the no mercy attitude of the Sith. Now, he definitely needed Plagueis and to get where he is, but he has the ego to claim the mantle of the Sith are, and I think that's more likely to be Bane, who had more of an impact on the Sith by killing pretty much all of them, and the Jedi by setting up this chain, than Palpatine did. But Palpatine also had a pretty powerful impact on the Jedi, and much more of an impact on the Sith. Sorry, much more of an impact on the Jedi, less of an impact on the Sith, because, you know, Order 66 and all that. And like, oh, the I love how stupid or egocentric Palpatine is. He's just like, yeah, you shouldn't like overestimate your ability and brag to your opponent that you have 95% defeat. You should finish it off. And then he just absolutely does it himself. 100% hypocritical. In any case, the Phantom Menace mostly concludes. Obi-Wan kills Maul, Qui-Gon dead, Anakin blows up the Lucre crap class freighter. By the way, Lucre, L-U-C-R-E means shameful or dishonest gain, so it's kind of an unsubtle name for the freighters of the Trade Federation. Dooku sees Qui-Gon's death and Anakin's training as the last straw and says that he's leaving the Order. The Jedi know the rule of two, and Dooku mentions to now Supreme Chancellor Palpatine that he might be interacting with an unknown Sith Master without even knowing it. Dooku expresses a somewhat timid interest in learning the dark side and says that the Council knows differently that the Sith are not the embodiment of true evil. He also believes that he can stand his ground against them. Dooku sees the separation of Jedi and Sith as a limited versus unlimited approach to utilizing the Force, not how it's used or what actions it's used for, but the method by which energy is procured, more or less. Anakin and Obi-Wan, at the very end of the epilogue, meet Palpatine in his offices. Anakin is... Somewhat abusively controlled by the Jedi, they're told don't talk about your childhood or your life or the abuse and traumas you've suffered in the past, and that's nothing if not a recipe for more and longer lasting trauma. When he's asked about his childhood and his past, he says, I'm not supposed to talk about that, and is like tusk tusked by his master Obi-Wan, who's, you know, in his mid-twenties, so maybe not the most prepared to be a parent, especially given that he has no training or expectation this was just thrust upon him the day before he says our upbringings aren't supposed to matter but you can't just ignore trauma and existent relationships like that but that's what the jedi are going to do and that probably won't backfire narrator it did uh, palpatine does note that he is not one to question the judgment of the jedi and while he is going to use dooku as a placeholder and teach him the ways of the dark side He's also going to mold Anakin to him. He's going to let the Jedi deal with much of his training, but he'll be there when the boy needs to vent. Anakin says, I've always wanted to bring justice before he's cut off by Obi-Wan. Not finishing that sentence. And bring justice to the galaxy? That sounds like what Palpatine tells Darth Vader when he returns. You've done it. You've brought peace and justice to the galaxy. Obi-Wan says that it's not up to Anakin to decide his fate, that the Force will decide for him. And Palpatine cackling the whole while is like, yes, the Force will decide, but I'm going to control the Force because that is what my life goal is. My goals were become Supreme Chancellor of the Republic 
and control the force. One down, one to go. And that is the story. So, holy crap, we're like, it's not going to match this because I'm going to be cutting some silences, but it's like over hour and a half of recording at this point, and we're just done with the plot. So, let's get into the analysis. So, Tenebris and the Older Sith. There's a little bit here of the older Bananites, and I just want to touch on them quickly, or as quickly as I can in this particular episode. Tenebris refers to Bane as the Sithari, and as he and Plagueis seek out Cortosis Vane's son Baldemic, Tenebris deifies Bane, correcting Plagueis from saying early years to seminal efforts, I guess an attempt to make it sound more posh. Tenebris is also tech-attuned. He was a spaceship designer, or starship designer, as Rugus known, and had an affinity for technology, able to manipulate it more delicately with the Force. There's also a note about Bith physiology in that he doesn't sleep much or often. Of course, later in the book, Palpatine notes that Plagueis isn't sleeping much or often, and it may be a sustained-by-the-Force sort of deal that that impacted Bane as well, because he also didn't need much sleep, particularly at his apex. So maybe just Darksiders don't need to sleep, which is pretty sweet. In any case, uh, when Bane and Zana went into hiding, or more accurately, Zana and Cognus, the dark side presence on the galaxy faded, and there was a sort of blanket of light over things. A hundred years before the rise of Plagueis, Tenebris's master, who's an unnamed Twi'lek, caused a rent in the Force. This is similar to the echo caused when Alderaan was destroyed or other disasters. How Tenebris and his master did this is unexplained but the wound impacted even those who didn't feel it, allowing for the rise of corruption across the galaxy. Plagueis referred to that event as the commencement of the Revenge of the Sith. How's that for a movie call? This wound or rent or echo or whatever was amplified when Plagueis finally killed Venomous. That moment of death and resurrection caused another rent and caused the darkness to spread a little bit more. Now, Plagueis does make mention that over the course of the millennia since Bane, there have been 30 individuals or fewer than 30 individuals who were worthy of becoming Sith. Most of their names, or most of the names of the Jedi we know in that time frame, or Sith rather, not Jedi at all, the Sith that were mentioned in that time frame, are mentioned in this book. There's Bane, Zana, Cognus, Tenebris, Plagueis, and Sidious. Those are obvious. There are a few other names that show up, including Venomous, Gravid, who is the Sith who turned to the Jedi and caused loss of much knowledge, including the right of essence transfer. Ramage, who is Gravid's apprentice, I believe, who saved some of the information. And then Geen, Millennial, and Vectivus. I don't know a whole lot about them. I think Millennial is Cognus's apprentice. They're all mentioned in passing. Those are the ones who are named from that millennia of time. Um, I didn't think that the last three, Gein, Millennial, and Vectivus, were called out, but they're in the book. Uh, I looked it up. It's, like, for most of them, the one place they were mentioned. Quick tangent on Gravid, and I want to say Ramage. I'm not 100% sure on that. But Gravid turned to the light side, and or turned to the Jedi, and gave up. And I'm very curious how the Jedi didn't, like, dig into this more. Did Gravid just not say, I'm a Sith, you should look and find my apprentice? Or did, like... Gravid just say, I'm going to put that all behind me and I'm going to forget. Was there a bout of amnesia? How did this happen without the Jedi looking deeper into the existence of the Sith? Because they've not believed the Sith to be around. They've believed the Sith to be extinct. Since 
Bane supposedly perished on Ambria a millennia before Phantom Menace, not halfway through during the reign of Darth Gravid. Next up, I just want to touch on the relationship between Plagueis and Tenebris. Both of Ego de Mosk's parents were Force-sensitive. His father was weak in the Force, but a powerful member of the intergalactic banking clan on Munalist, and his mother powerful in the Force, particularly with a dark side slant, but without much social status. Rugus Gnome brought them together with the carrot of apprenticeship acolyte for Hego's mother and some connections, not politically, but economically and commercially, with Hego's father. He took, Rugus took Hego when he was still a young child to begin training, but had him remain with his family as their galactic position was a valuable resource. Plagueis, at the start of this book, has been apprenticed for as long as a human might live, which I estimate to be roughly 80 to 100 years. I think it might be somewhere mentioned explicitly a century-long apprenticeship, which is a very long time. Zana lasted 20 years, Palpatine lasted 30. Waiting a full century is a very long time. Then again, I don't know the natural lifespan of Bith and Mun, so maybe it's more appropriate and scaled to them. Tenebris despaired for Plagueis because he'd never followed his destiny and never attempted to rise up against Tenebris. This feels very similar to the dynamic that Bane and Zana had. It's shown up in two out of two rule of two relationships. And I wonder how frequent it is that the apprentice isn't as aggressive as the master would like because the master forgets when they were the apprentice how much it takes to be confident in your ability to take on your master. Finally, as Tenebris dies, Plagueis does not worry about the right of essence transfer as it was lost by Darth Gravid. And it, that disappoints me greatly. As I mentioned previously in the Darth Bane books, I really like the idea of the Sith Masters always pushing their essence into their apprentice, always continuing the line and continuing that knowledge and having this shared hub. I think that would have been a really cool story to explore, and unfortunately, here is proven non-canon. Palpatine does not have any of the knowledge of the pre-existing Sith. It's possible that, like, it was only lost a few hundred years ago, as Gravid could have been the, well, Gravid's apprentice could have been Tenebris's master's master. So it could have been one or two generations separated. We'll never know. Stepping to Plagueis himself, I want to start with the most famous quote. I, this is one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about this book, because this book is so much more than the quote. Plagueis is famous because of the meme. But the depth of this story shows that there's so much more. The movies don't really do the lore justice. There's such a complicated web of lies and deceit, manipulation and planning. And the corruption of Anakin just feels so slapdash and weak when seen in the movies as compared to this decades-long plot put into motion starting here, starting even before they knew Anakin was alive. And yet we get, this is what we know about Darth Plagueis. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise he could use the Force to influence midichlorians to create light. He had such a knowledge of the dark side that he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. He became so powerful, the only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. 
Unfortunately, he taught his apprentice everything he knew. Then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. Ironic. He could save others from death, but not himself. This, of course, is fascinating. As we know, Palpatine is Plagueis' apprentice. We know more about what's going on. Now, there are some critiques here. This is about as honest as a book blurb. Plagueis didn't really have loved ones or even people he cared about. I mean, sure, he kept Venomous alive, but he only really cared about him as a science project. That's pure fiction to entice Anakin. There's also a hint that Palpatine knows how to extend life indefinitely. He was Plagueis' apprentice, right? And he was taught everything. But I don't think Palpatine necessarily has that power. Then, of course, there's the claim that Plagueis died in his sleep is, of course, false. We just read about that, where he was assassinated in his room. But if he was assassinated in his sleep, the only one who would know how it happened would be the one who did it. And that's that brings something else up. How did the Jedi learn about Darth Plagueis? How did they get this legend? It's not a legend from decades or centuries or millennia ago. It's a story from, at this point, 13 years earlier. It's not, it's not that long ago. Uh, the Jedi wouldn't have a whole library of information on him. They probably have very little on Darth Bane. They've been, the Sith in general, have been operating in secrecy. And if they knew about Plagueis, they'd probably be looking for more, like this guy named Darth Sidious. Maybe, I don't know, just thinking. Of course, maybe that's Palpatine's point, that the Jedi only see half of the picture. The Sith hoard their knowledge, and the Jedi don't go looking for it because they don't know it's there. So the Jedi can't know the powers of the Sith, whereas the Sith can balance their knowledge with that of the Jedi and find temperance, if they cared to. Which, of course, a Jedi would, because you would never fall to the dark side. You're far too smart and strong and talented for that, right, Anakin? Anyways, here's a cookie. Welcome to the dark side. Now, there's another line later on. To say the Force works in mysterious ways is to admit one's ignorance, for any mystery can be solved through the application of knowledge and unrelenting. And I really like this. This is a line from Plagueis. Saying something is mysterious or ineffable just means you haven't researched it enough. I don't know how so much technology works. Magnets work in mysterious ways, but it's measurable knowledge. You can see cause and effect. And even if something is intangible and not directly measurable, you can look at impact and see patterns and derive information from patterns and make inferences. It's not mysterious, it's just not yet understood. Of course, there's also Plagueis and his quest for immortality. Right off the bat at the beginning of the book, Palpatine calls Plagueis' attempts at immortality a petty move for one so wise in the prologue and claims that Pelagius was setting his success above the grand plan. Now, I still disagree with this as a guarantee. Like, I think that any Sith Lord who seeks immortality is not necessarily disregarding the plan to remove the Jedi and the Republic from the whole galactic scene. But I think that's possibly the case in this instance. I think an immortal Sith Lord, or pair, would be better able to manipulate the flow of the Republic. Rather than having to play a game of telephone, cross-generational game of telephone, albeit with many checks and balances, they would be able to directly oversee their machinations. I do, I guess this is a time to go on a tangent about the rule of two and how it was generally disregarded. Plagueis notes that many disregarded the rule and its explicit nature due to perceived incompetence of other Sith, but that Plagueis himself chose to ignore it because he couldn't picture himself allowing to remain apprentice had Tenebris been successful in overthrowing the Republic and the Jedi. Furthermore, he can't see himself positioning himself to act as a pawn or a tool, just be a resource for a future Sith Lord to be successful. 
Although that's exactly what he did, and it's exactly what he told Palpatine to do to him. But hey, hypocrisy is par for the course for both Jedi and Sith. Except for Darth Bane. He was very non-hypocritical in a lot of ways. Proud of that guy. Now, Palpatine says, but in the end, though he could save others from death, he could not save himself. It's not quite a direct quote from the above Revenge of the Sith line, but clearly inspired by that legend. Of course, Plagueis' speciality is biology and physiology. He's able to control his body temperature, breathing, heart rate, and more through mental discipline and the Force, and can moderate those in others. He was trained on Megiddo by Tenebris. The first thing he did was just be tossed out into the Arctic and made to control his body temperature so he didn't freeze to death. He also talks about the assassination of Carid Santh, where he used the Force to mimic the symptoms of a poison. He had that fine of control over the physiological response of somebody else's body. Now, on the Wobegon, which is the freighter he hijacked leaving Baldemic to return to Moonalist at the beginning of the story, Plagueis watches as the midichlorians leave the bodies of those he's killed. Now, first, he has this ability, and apparently it's a Sith or dark side trait to be able to sense the strength and presence of midichlorians, whereas the Jedi need more mundane methods of blood testing to make that message. Well, it, maybe it's like a intuitive read that can be misled versus objective data. And if the Sith kidnap somebody or recruit somebody who just can't cut it as an apprentice, it's not really a problem for the master. The candidate is just eliminated and they find somebody else. If the Jedi find somebody who doesn't quite meet their expectations, there's the whole rigmarole of returning the child or sending them to the agri-core or something. Like that. Plus, the midichlorian test may be the most extreme test of potential Jedi ever faces, whereas the Sith apprentice may be sent out into a blizzard the first day of their apprenticeship and forced to push themselves to the limits or die. If the read is wrong, it's quickly discovered and no big loss. Now, one of the characters that I did not mention at all in the story is a droid named 114D who assists Plagueis in his experiments and is a somewhat harsh time aid. When introduced to Plagueis' experiments, the droid says, all living things ultimately die, do they not? To which Plagueis responds, at present. And this brings up a piece of math that I like to share. This is an idea that I had years and years and years ago. There are roughly 8 billion humans on Earth. I'm from 6 billion when I first learned about this stat in elementary school, which feels like it's not a sustainable rate. Plus 2 billion every like 15 or 20 years. That's, if we stay linear, that's a lot. Anyways, 8 billion humans on Earth and 117 who have ever lived on the planet. That makes roughly 7% of all of humanity that has ever lived has not yet died. And so not all things have died. And so there's humanity as a condition is only 93% fatal as of now. Of course, things are happening and I presume most people will die. And I don't think the first person who will be immortal is alive today. But one way to find out, Plagueis refers to the studies of ancient sorcerers and other research in his own explorations. Now, first of all, the force is resistant to self-healing. It's not that the dark side is bad at it. It's just that dark side users don't usually have anyone close enough to heal them. And self-healing imperils the balance of the force from the perspective of the force. So Jedi are not only more likely to work in teams and have somebody who can heal them, they're therefore more likely to have the opportunity to practice healing techniques. It's plausible, I believe, for a dark side force user to use the force to heal, but they don't really know how to, they're not trained to, and who are they healing? There's not a whole lot of people that they care about extending the life of. Now, sorceress powers, such as the essence transfer or reanimation, 
are not actually what Plagueis seeks. It'd be possible potentially to find the holocron of Darth and Daedu, or those who brought back the dead or came back as Force ghosts. He wants true immortality, not spiritual entity. The Force ghost that Qui-Gon manifests as is not what Plagueis seeks, because Qui-Gon, while he can impart information, has no physical or direct impact on the universe at large. Plagueis believes that it's possible that the Celestials, who are an ancient, ancient race, who appeared to have become one with the Force millennia and millennia and millennia before any of our stories start, may be manipulating the balance, but further still, he looks to Darth Vitiate, the old Sith Emperor, and notes that while he maintained his spirit, he wasn't wholly present, in it. and that's not what Plagueis wants either. He has, at this point, the ability to coax midichlorians together and apart, to hasten or slow death, or to restore life to a limited degree. He wonders if he'll be able to create forceful life through this manipulation compared to the way that Tenebris matchmade his parents to essentially force create a Padawan or an apprentice. Now, it's been asked again by a listener, again, Matthew, and thank you, if Plagueis' actions and Bane's with the Rite of Essence transfer and Palpatine's with his clones goes against the philosophy of the Sith and the Rule of Two. I goes against the principle of passing knowledge down, but I think that as long as you have an apprentice that you are training, the pursuit of immortality is actually beneficial and fits within the Rule of Two. If you're able to find immortality, it means that any apprentice is going to have to overcome that massive power, and there's more power for them to crave, which is what the rule exists for. As long as there's an individual who's giving you competition, they're pushing you to improve, and that causes the power of the Sith to grow, especially if they keep pursuing you. It's this hamster wheel of chasing after power. On the other hand, keeping your apprentice artificially shackled, like Palpatine does with Vader, by not giving him full treatments and letting him heal fully, is against the philosophy. Speaking of Palpatine, I want to talk about his relationship with Plagueis. We're just going down the pairs one at a time through the chronology. Now, Plagueis and Palpatine have a very complex relationship, as of course befits a Sith master and apprentice, complicated by the fact that Plagueis wants to rewrite the rule of two. Plagueis wants nothing to do with the political arena that he's given over to Palpatine, and that the two manipulate together. He deeply prefers to work from the shadows, but he's been involved in politics for decades, close to a century, and so he's very well aware of how to control that sphere and what Palpatine needs to do to succeed. In some ways, he's like the knowledgeable but disinterested father. The, you could have done that better, or I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed vibe. Kind of like uh, Norman Osborn to Harry Osborn in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. I've been watching a lot of Spider-Man recently, it's a thing. In any case, uh, eventually their relationship becomes somewhat contentious as seen in Lockdown, Cloak of Deception, and the later portions of this book. A mistrust begins as Plagueis begins to suspect that Palpatine might be planning to eliminate him or honor the plan to have them be co-chancellors, even though Palpatine is sounding very supportive. And Palpatine believes he may be replaced by Dooku. There's the comfort of history, and they know the identity of their ally, but they're not actually terribly close friends. And while they can be honest with each other, and while they've saved each other's lives, they don't actually trust the other with their life. It actually reminds me somewhat of Palpatine's relationship with his father, which was also very contentious in nature. I think that Plagueis' fall begins on Megiddo when he starts the training of Palpatine. That's his misstep. Or that is the action that led to his eventual downfall, picking a powerful apprentice. While he does instill a craving in Palpatine for Plagueis' power, Plagueis' plan is to stop teaching at parody. But there's nothing to stop Palpatine from using his power to lay claim to authority, wealth, etc., 
that Pelagius has when they reach parity, especially if Palpatine pushes himself beyond and learns something more. Now, a decade into training Palpatine in like the 54 to 52 BBY era, Plagueis shares some of his philosophy on the Sith with Palpatine. He argues that the dark came before the light and that the subservience of the Force by the Rakata and Celestials came before subservience to the Force. Uh, the Rakata and Celestials used the Force to enact their will rather than listening to the Force and doing what the Force wants. Bogan before Ashlar. And... To be fair, on a physics level, dark is the default state, and light is something that has to be created. The Jedi are striving to keep balance, that they, but they keep the galaxy in stasis, preventing evolution, whereas the Sith want evolution. And here comes another Spider-Man reference. The Sith believe people can be more, stronger, better, which reminds me of Dr. Connors, also known as the Lizard, and Spider-Man. In any case, when Plagueis and Palpatine take time to discuss the advancement of Maul, Palpatine praised Maul and left his honor intact, even though Maul wasn't ideal. While he did underperform, Palpatine let him believe he is more skilled than he actually is. And Plagueis says that he never did that for Palpatine. Palpatine's action is against Bane's philosophy. Honor is no use for the dead. It's unnecessary. Give harsh, critical feedback. That's how you learn. And to a degree, that's something that I believe in. I don't believe in harsh, critical feedback. I believe in radical candor which is the confluence of caring personally and delivering feedback. What Palpatine has done is he doesn't care personally about Maul. He's delivered invalid feedback and hasn't really tried to shape Maul. And so he's on the other end of the spectrum as far from good feedback as we can get. Whereas Plagueis did care personally about Palpatine and did deliver feedback and was critical when necessary. Now, at times he may have been harsher in his language, but he was still upfront with his feedback and did it for the betterment of Palpatine. So again, points for Plagueis for following the ideals of radical candor. Now, at the time of the trade summit on Ariadu and the attack on Sojourn, Plagueis, who has mostly removed himself from the political sphere, still sees himself being appointed as co-chancellor. Jedi and other members of the general course on atmosphere are like, I thought you've been retired for two decades. I thought you were not a player anymore. And this is where I feel he starts to be delusional or senile. There's no world where Palpatine agrees to share power. And furthermore, Hego Damask, that identity, has burned through so much social capital and goodwill with his machinations that he's no longer welcome. His presence would undermine Palpatine's authority to the point where the chancellorship is meaningless. Palpatine, on the other hand, has remained in politics and is well-liked and well-regarded. This seat would be his and he'd be able to make decisions in concert with Plagueis, even if Plagueis had to simply be a shadow partner instead of a full partner. Of course, I can't not talk about Palpatine himself. Palpatine was enrolled in a university program for future politicians and is pretty much a trust fund killer. He was responsible for the deaths of two pedestrians in his youth in a speeder accident. Uh, even early on, he was espousing Sith philosophy. He didn't really feel remorse for the deaths of those pedestrians, and he was able to have that kind of removed from his record, and his father didn't quite forgive him for it, but tried to bribe him into not racing. But when he first talks with Plagueis, he says, I think that the Jedi have dedicated themselves to limiting change. They wait for the Senate to tell them when and where to intervene and what to fix, when in fact they could use the Force to impose their will on the entire galaxy if they want. This is, of course, the strong force their will on the weak and have the freedom to do so. Palpatine further says, I want to be a force for change. I want to rule but not just for power's sake. He doesn't want the respect and authority the position gives, but to improve the galaxy for other beings, at least those who meet his qualifications of 
worthwhile. But he's still, to a degree, an idealist. He wants to change the galaxy. He wants to be a force for advancement, for evolution, not this static, everything is fine, we're going to hold on to this corruption. Which is very interesting, being this Sith individual with this somewhat altruistic goal, which may be corrupted by the time he gets to the Chancellorship or by the time the Clone Wars have really set in. Now, we also get the materials and components of Palpatine's first lightsaber. It's made primarily of Frick, P-H-R-I-K, which is a near indestructible and lightsaber proof metal, and erodium, which is very valuable and shiny and discussed in Book of Deception a little bit more, and it's plated with Electrum, which is a gold-like finish, which is very similar to Mace Windu's saber. And, of course, it has a synthetic crystal, as is traditional for Sith. Just some fun little details there. Okay, deep breath. Moving on, we approach Dooku. So, a lot of this is from the passage right after Jabba reveals that Komari Vosa is leading the Band of Gora to Plagueis at this meeting between Palpatine and Dooku. Dooku only knows of her death and blames himself for for not preventing her ascension, although the council okayed it as well, and despite her infatuation for him and her violent behavior. He also feels that Qui-Gon Jinn, who's a bit of a maverick and a rebel, is a failure, although Dooku himself has many similar traits. Of course, Komar Vosa is not dead, so he's slightly misinformed. In any case, Dooku declined to be a member of the council in order to devote himself to diplomacy. He was, for example, on Sereno earlier, where he met with Hego Damask and many locals to Sereno to mediate a diplomatic local conflict. He feels as though he has failed as the Republic has continued its slide into corruption. Palpatine says, you're one man against a galaxy of scoundrels, to which Dooku responds, one man should be enough to make a difference if he is powerful enough. And this sounds like tacit approval of Palpatine's plan to become emperor and change the galaxy. And it sounds like Dooku has a bit of an ego and a little bit of a lust for power himself. Of course, the two of them are being a little gendered and humanocentric, and certainly Palpatine, at least, is specious and sexist, and demonstrates it clearly with his principles throughout the Empire later on. Now, Dooku is considering leaving the Order at this point in time to reclaim his title as Count so he can effect change as a politician. When he's asked, he reveals that 19 others have left the Order. Now, to clarify, that's 19 Jedi Masters, not 19 Jedi, period. They don't keep track of the knights and Padawans and those who haven't made it to Pad the rank of Padawan. They don't keep track of them. It's just the 19 Jedi Masters. Now, Dooku expresses that sifo is worried that Dooku might spill the beans on how divided the Jedi Council is on answering to the Senate. This actually isn't discussed anywhere else in this book and only touched upon lightly during the Clone Wars because the Jedi actually gain a fair amount of agency during that time when they're defending the Republic. But it's an interesting schism that deserves noting. I'm curious which Jedi are like, we're just going to listen to the Senate, we're going to do what they say, we're going to intervene when and where they say, and which Jedi on the Council at the time of the Phantom Menace are more on the lines of, we can take action, we have a moral obligation to take action. Because I think those are, I mean, one of them is, what the Republic is, is good and right, and we should listen to them. And the other one is, we have an idea of what is good and right, and we should follow through on that. In any case, Dooku says, still in this meeting that he is considering joining Senator Palpatine's cause. Palpatine is a champion of the underprivileged and the disenfranchised support him. He says, you may be the one capable of bringing the Republic back from the brink, unless you've been lying to me all these years. Palpatine admits perhaps a few lies of mission, like, for example, small one, he's a Sith Lord set on tearing down the Republic and eliminating the Jedi. But 
Dooku has some philosophical disagreements with the Jedi, but he still believes in galactic betterment and believes to a degree in the Republic. He wants to see the Republic reestablished without corruption. But again, he believes in Palpatine, and either Palpatine's a very good actor, or Dooku is a lot closer to the dark side at this point in time than we initially think. When Dooku proposes a partnership, Palpatine says that they would have to be completely honest and bear their innermost thoughts. Immediately, without hesitation, Dooku says, I want to tear down and rebuild the Republic. No hesitation. He's just like, yeah, you know the government that I kind of swore to defend? I want it gone. I want to start over from scratch. When Palpatine says, okay, but something like that would probably require a civil war, Dooku isn't dismissive. He's frustrated that the Jedi are focused on small brush fires of interplanetary wars when the root cause is the corruption of the Senate. He suggests disbanding the Senate for a period of time, which Palpatine, of course, later on does when he forms the Empire. And to talk about the I am the Senate line, while Palpatine doesn't directly control the Senate at the end of Revenge of the Sith, he is vastly popular, just won a war, and has massive influence as a, even now as a senator, much less a chancellor. In any case, uh, the Jedi Council is also waiting a redeemer, one to bring balance to the Force. This is Palpatine the first time he hears of the prophecy. Dooku thinks that if the Jedi embraced the Force fully, they could force the outcome they desired. You can look back to young Palpatine's philosophy saying if the Jedi just did what they wanted, if they took charge, they could fix so many problems. And again, it also ties into Dooku's understanding of the light and the dark. The light, you put limitations on how you use the Force. The dark, you don't. And so Dooku wants to see the Jedi embrace the dark side to a degree and bring peace and justice to the galaxy. Now, Elsewhere, in different conversation, Plagueis believes that Dooku can't be brought into the fold as an apprentice or be bullied into a minion because he's too intelligent and ambitious to serve as a minion. But that does make him good backup apprentice material. What Plagueis wants is for Dooku to find his own way through the Sith holocrons that the Jedi have, the ancient scrolls, and other documentation. I do really, really wish that we got to see more of the fall of Dooku. We see a couple things happening here and there. We get a couple of conversations. And honestly, it might happen in the comics, so I'm going to have to read those. But I want to see him talking with the Jedi, facing down the council and tearing apart their hypocritical philosophy. I want to see his consternation as he talks with Qui-Gon Jinn or sifo about his confusion of his oath to the Republic and to the Jedi and to what he believes is right, his goals and trying to fix things. I think it'd be fascinating to follow him. I'd watch the crap out of a TV show starring him. In any case, uh, in his final conversation with Palpatine, he says, I'm tempted to adopt a new name altogether, which is kind of weird given that he's accepted his noble title and so he's gone from Jedi Master Dooku to Count Dooku. And he's comfortable with that name, but the Sith adopt new names. And he's been leaning in that direction. He's been leaning towards the dark side. And I think he knows or suspects at the very least that Palpatine is Sith inclined, saying, I might pick a new name. You know what that means among Force users. It means I'm picking a Darth and a Cognomen, not a Cognomen. That's the, no, Cognomen is the last name. Yeah, Darth and a new Cognomen or Nomen, whatever. Latin, I'm not sharp on it. I'll get over it. Dooku does say he knows that there's a Master and Apprentice Sith and that pe people may be interacting with the Sith Master right now. And he confesses to Palpatine that he would like to learn the ways of the dark side to Palpatine's face. He's got to know that Palpatine is Sith or suspect. My favorite bit of this scene, though, does come from Palpatine at the very end, where Palpatine just like temples his 
fingers together and is just like, ah, yes. I'm sure this mysterious Sith Lord will reach out to you soon, TM. Stay by your phone. I'm going to call you. Now I want to talk a little bit about the Sith and the Jedi. I know I've talked a lot about individual Sith and Jedi, but there's just a little bit of general philosophy. When Plagueis first reveals the Sith to Palpatine, Palpatine asks or suggests that the Sith are evil. He had previously, however, expressed that he had felt like a storm, a conduit for the Force when he was killing his family. And Plagueis posits that if the Sith are conducting the will of the Force, they are a natural cause, like a storm or a black hole, neither good nor evil, simply present. If someone navigates into a black hole or pisses off a Sith, the consequences are natural and to be expected. To a degree, Plagueis is arguing for destiny and determinism by the Force. If the Sith were not meant to be, the Force would have eliminated them, or at the very least, not let them have as much power and success. This also ties into Dooku's philosophy a little bit, where he believes that the Jedi Council say that the Sith are not wholly evil. It's a force of nature that exists and cannot be quelled. Removing the dark side of the Force from the galaxy is impossible, as is removing the light. There will be eventually balance and harmony. At least, that's my understanding. Now, on the other hand, talk about the Jedi. On Coruscant, at the time of the vote to seat Felucia, Marcana, and the other subsidiary planets of the Trade Federation to the Senate, Palpatine feels the collective pride of the Jedi. When massed, there's definitely an ego of them. Each Jedi believes that they are right and invincible, and surrounded in an echo chamber. Coruscant is awash with the light side because they keep reinforcing each other's beliefs, rather than trying to undermine them or find weaknesses to provide critical feedback. And that light, that strength, is a veneer that shatters when struck, as we see during the Clone Wars. Now, this is a bit about Coruscant and its design, but despite the temple and the massive concentration of Jedi, the lack of natural life, just the sentient immigrants, means that there is less for the Force to cling to. Compared to Korriban, Coruscant is weaker in the light than Korriban in the dark. And Korriban is dusty and old and abandoned. Dathomir could potentially be almost sickeningly dark to a Jedi. Palpatine also believes, only a decade into his training, that neither he or Plages could take on even the greatest master Jedi Order one-on-one, -on -one, but recognizes that the true obstacle is the quantity of the Jedi. Which brings me to talk about the balance of the Force. There's a fair amount of noise in this story and in other places made about the balance of the Force. The Chosen One, Anakin, is supposed to bring balance to the Force, and the galaxy has been heavily out of balance direction of light influence for the past millennia and so i think it's right that like the jedi misinterpret balance they're like oh yes balance means we win that's not what balance means balance means 50 50 not 100 zero in any case this is an idea i have but i'm not sure it's substantiating though but i feel like there were hints especially before the vote on felucia and mercana all where palpatine compared his power to the jedi that yes it's possible that he's naturally more powerful with a greater connection to the Force, and that Plagueis is also incredibly powerful. But I think it's more likely that there's a balance between light and dark in total reservoir, in reserve. And the number of people tapping into it has an influence on how strong you are. There's only so much light side battery charge that all of the Jedi have to split it, even the one with high caps or high draw power, whereas Plagueis and Palpatine, with very little competition for fuel, are able to be much more powerful. It can also be an influence on how Luke and later Vader are able to fight against Darksiders in the original trilogy. While there are some light side force users outside of the movies, the dark side is now spread out among Emperor's hands and Inquisitors, the Emperor, Vader, whereas the light side is spread amongst many fewer Jedi. 
Luke is wildly undertrained, and so it doesn't make sense that he'd be able to fight Vader to a standstill without a massive advantage being given to him by the light side and that imbalance. In any case, there's a further accusation that I find holds true that the Jedi have conflated legality with justice and righteousness. To quote, they execute the Republic's business as if it were the business of the Force, but has a political body ever succeeded in being the arbiter of what is right and just? We're going to back them into contradiction, Darth Sidious. We're going to force them to confront the moral quandary of their position and reveal their flaws by requiring them to oversee the conflicts that plague their vaunted republic. This, of course, is what comes to pass. Play just put forward the idea that a war or secession of one of the Jedi would lead to a mass exodus, and we see that happen. At the very least, many Jedi questioning their philosophies and commands and the teachings, and we're going to dive into that in a little over a month as the change as we get into the Clone Wars proper. Furthermore, the hypocrisy of being militarized peacekeepers will cause further talk. And I just want to keep an eye on the Jedi conflating legality with justice and righteousness. Finally, almost finally, I want to talk about the grand plan. So this is put together in a few places throughout the book, and it's something that you can pick up on, especially if you've read the books of the execution of the plan, which includes the Clone Wars and you want to attack the clones. But We've got some details on this plan. One, the Jedi have to be seen not as martyrs, but as enemies of the state. Two, the attack should come at the end of the Long War with victory in sight, so that their defenses are lowered, which have been held firm for years against a clearly visible enemy. Let them feel relief, then hit them. This is a somewhat common military tactic, to attack just before dawn. Sentries are at their most relaxed then, as the rest of the shift has passed unmolested, they're tired and they want to eat or go to sleep themselves, Light is beginning to shine so they can see clearly again, and they trust their instincts, and they're not as vigilant. Of course, by getting the Jedi embroiled in a war in the first place, there will be casualties by their enemy, although relatively few compared to their total number. But there will also be serious damage to their morale, and to their morals. Being warriors is not what they're designed to do. They're protectors, not aggressors. But to save lives, they're going to need to learn aggression. They'll be exposed to battlefield realities, military casualties, and civilian casualties and they may have to make decisions, frequently and under pressure and analysis, that result in the loss of life of civilians and innocents. Furthermore, those Jedi who are conflict-skilled, those who are good at fighting, are going to be the first ones on the front lines, and so that means the ones that are most dangerous to the well-being of the Sith individually are going to be the ones who are at the highest risk. While there are many Jedi who are meditative masters, or the Agricor, or whatever, while they may not be on the front line, somebody who did not pass the tests to become a Jedi Knight probably not going to hold much of a fight up against Sidious or Plagueis. In any case, while Plagueis and Palpatine have an army in development for the Separatists, the Jedi also need an army, but there are some requirements for that. It needs to be answerable to the Sith, in this case, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine. It's a Republic army, and it's controlled by the Sith. Now, in order to manage the timing and pacing of the war, the Sith need to be playing both sides, and right now, Sidious is manipulating the Trade Federation, Plagueis, the intergalactic banking clan, both separatist entities, and Palpatine will soon be the Chancellor and control the grand strategy of the Republic, so he'll be able to play chess playing both sides, and so he can figure out how long he wants the game to go on, what resources he wants to lose, all he has to do is make it look like he's trying on both sides, and... In war, it's relatively easy due to massive amounts of misinformation. And on top of that, Palpatine has the excuse of various interest groups, a plan being like, we need you to defend us. And so he can send resources there, 
even though it's an inefficient move because he can say, no, this is a politically expedient move. I'm the Supreme Chancellor. Do you think I know what I'm talking about with regards to politics, General? And so that gives him a lot of leeway in the management of the armies. Of course, the last problem is the army cannot be traced to either of them, which harkens back to Plagius's earlier conversations with Sifo-Dyas regarding the development of the clone army. He, while he is funding it, he's going to do so through a couple subsidiaries, so it's hidden, and Sifo-Dyas is going to be embarrassed about this. He's going to be going behind the back of the council and the senate. He agreed to as much. He's like, this is what's going to happen. This has to happen if we're going to have an army. And Hego Damask, the former Plagius, or the other way around, is like, absolutely, I'll help you make that happen if you think that's what needs to happen. And so it's wholly on the shoulders of sifo with unknown financing. Finally, 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 we get to our miscellaneous notes. We're almost at the end, folks. Damask is a reversible, delicate cloth pattern. Now, while... Hego Damask didn't choose this name for himself, it was chosen by the author, and I'm quite likely reading too far into it, but Plagius does have two identities and is relatively delicate in his philosophies compared to other Sith. Going deeper on one, they are vegetarians as a species, Plagius calls humans barbaric meat eaters. Furthermore, it's discourteous to eat while conducting business by their culture. Business dinners are not a Mun thing. That's not related to the reversible delicate pattern in the name thing, but it's just another detail about Mun biology, and I probably could have included that way at the beginning when I was talking about Togruta and all that, but it's been a little while since I was talking about that, and I'm not going to go back and edit this in over there. In any case, when Gardula the Hutt first comes to Plagueis seeking aid, he notes that there was once an ecological disaster that ruined the planet of Tatooine, and so its desert nature is not a consequence of the two suns, it's just that they make it suck more now that it is a desert. He also notes that it was once home to a Sith outpost, which I believe you can visit playing Star Wars The Old Republic, which is set several thousand years before this. Now, I honestly can't remember if I mentioned this in other overviews, but I don't think I have. And there are a couple patterns in the names of the Sith. Both Vader and Sidious, if you append the prefix in to their names, have descriptive names. Invader and Insidious. Darth Vader, of course, being the military side, and Darth Sidious being the plotter from behind the screen. Vader also has linguistic ties to German for father, Vater, V-A-T-E-R, one letter difference from Vader. Now, Plagueis and Venomous both have ties to degeneration, plague and venom. Then, of course, there's Cognus naming herself after her mental capabilities, and of course, Bane takes on a nickname, Bane, and Zana rejects her nickname in favor of her birth name, so it's not wholly consistent naming scheme. Plus, they're the many Sith of this empire before Bane and Zana, but I definitely talked about them for a hot minute. There's also a scene on Coruscant, jumping away from the Sith, for one of the big votes where clouds and stormy weather are cleared away and daylight maximized to make a great scene for the televisions. It's just another tidbit about the artificiality of the planet. It's cool to me that they control the weather and the atmosphere. And it's plausible science in our own reality. It's just a matter of scope that prevents us from doing so on the planet. But when you have space docks and an ecumenopolis and a galaxy full of resources and superior automation and millennia of development, it's possible to control the weather on planets relatively easy and terraform them. Of course, it's also home to trillions of species, and so it has a lot of relative wealth. You're not going to be terraforming, saying Tatooine anytime soon. Now, another small note. Right before Palpatine is kidnapped, the bar, it's playing some Jats music, J-A-T-Z, 
which sounds like it might be associated with jazz, and at the very least is a better sounding name than jizz music, which is what the famous cantina band plays. Yes, they play jizz music. There's also, jumping away from that entirely, a moment where Maul is training, waiting to go on his mission to Dorvala, where he's using a Lanovarak, I believe is the pronunciation, which is an ancient and rare Sith weapon. It comes up in a couple other novels as a novelty. See what I see what I did there? But it's mostly from the comics from pre-Sith Empire times, like the time of Exar Kun and Naga Sado and Freedon Nad. And then it was mostly a polearm, not a wrist-mounted, like, blade launcher. Finally, this is kind of big spoilers. It's not huge spoilers, not plot, but where characters go. So it'll be referenced in some books well down the line, but most of the action occurs in the comics, and I have no idea when we'll get to that, so I'm going to pretend that it's not spoilers. Saint Pistage and Kinsman Dort. Before I start saying more, if you want to skip this, skip ahead 30 seconds, a minute, you'll be fine. I think 30 seconds enough. Yes, 30 seconds, go. Now, Saint Pistage and Kinsman Doriana are two humans who are long-term advisors to Palpatine from his time as Senator, though Supreme Chancellor and Emperor. And Doriana dies sometime before Return of the Jedi, but Saint Pistage is actually sitting in the throne on Coruscant while Palpatine dies and takes on the mantle of Emperor after Endor. Other allies of Palpatine who have storied futures include Armand Assard, a Republican intelligence analyst, who becomes head of Imperial Intelligence and father of Hussein Assard, Senator Wilhelf Tarkin of Ariadu, who, of course, I've mentioned as the Grand Moth. And, oh, 30 seconds, welcome back. If you enjoyed this book, well, there's nothing else quite like it. You might notice that this episode is a little bit longer than some of our previous episodes. There's nothing so rich and dense in exposition and setup and characters and histories. There isn't a... There are these other books that are similar to Darth Plagueis, but rather, there are these other books that are connected to the story. That's really everything that has Anakin as a main figure during the Clone Wars, and that's the next big overarching story arc now that the Clone Wars have been set up. How does Anakin fall to the dark side? Some considerations for books that you might want to read include Rogue Planet, Outbound Flight, and Approaching Storm, which coincidentally are our next three books. You might also want to look at Jedi Trial or Dark Lord Rise of Darth Vader, as they are all intrinsically connected to Anakin's fall. Of course, anything else by James Luceno is going to have a similar narrative style, but nothing as gripping as this in my opinion, although I may be misremembering. In any case, if you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next week. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore Archive or email me at podcast at fatelfgames.com. I'm Jonah, and the archives are definitely incomplete.